see you're back here again with a Looking Glass Forum. We're drawing a distinction between the darkness and the light, holding up a standard in the battle for American liberty, and remembering the day of the Lord to keep it holy. Thank you for coming back to Looking Glass Forum. So we're back here and we're taking another in-depth deep dive into a very interesting subject, the topic of discussion that <clears throat> I find uh, very fascinating. And uh, me and my wife were just, we're busy in the world, our kids have grown up and we're busy trying to get our careers to, to advance and sometimes I have to work on the road and uh, I stay busy on projects and she has her, her own business and she stays busy, you know, picking up work and trying to get our, our, our side businesses to grow and to develop so that we can eventually earn more money and retire. And so we're quintessential American people. We're really entrepreneurs having started from the ground up, having started with really nothing. Um, we've had to make something out of nothing. I mean, that's kind of the name of the game here. But in, in today's episode, we need to go into a, a deep dive of a topic. And I, and I say all that previously just to point out that it's it's time consuming to make these episodes. So I hope they're informative and I hope you enjoy them. But it's they're important that we kind of get add some of these this information. And sometimes it's important just to be able to have the freedom to say what your opinion is, even if other people don't like it, even if it's not socially acceptable, or if there's a kind of prejudice against an idea or if you know it's not politically correct with like the face mask thing I don't wear it I go around and I just refuse to wear the face mask so no one really bothers me I think other people are constrained to do it because they're ordered to because they're at their job you know we're out and about and other people just do it while they're driving alone in their car or walking down the sidewalk all alone and they think they're wearing the mask that it's what to do. It's what everyone says to do. It's what everyone in Congress is doing on TV. Or it just becomes a social cue, and people just go by it. and And I prefer not to do it. And I'm just going to suffer the consequences when they tell me I'm not allowed to go into Walmart. I take that as a a sign from heaven that I shouldn't be in there spending my money in, in the first place. And there's plenty of places that don't really care. And they can, you know, you can tell by looking at people's eyes that it's it's absurd and we're all putting up with this strange absurdity and we really don't know why. It's not a command from Washington, D.C. It's not a command from the state necessarily. Maybe it's the governor's authority. And, we, you know, we have to question why we're all obeying a governor's authority without any question. We're just doing as we're told. And um, maybe we have to look at our own lives a little bit and just question our own depth and our own willingness to maintain our own conscience and our own mind. Keep our own counsel, if you will. So now we have this kind of disaster Joe Biden office. It's fascinating. 
watching him bumble around with these absurd uh, executive orders. He's just piling them up. And if executive orders are like anything else, every time he signs a new one, it just cheapens the paper that it was uh, written on. And I can't imagine how much power or how much or like authority are behind these bizarre proclamations, but I think the man has gone insane. I think Kamala Harris is chomping at the bit and foaming in the mouth to get in there and, who knows, try to just topple this country once and for all. She did wear a very obnoxious purple outfit to her, symbolically to her thing. People are picking up on that. But what I want to talk about today is, you know, free speech, and that's what this is all about, but also free thinking and um, free intellectual pursuit, and that's what this episode is going to require. I don't want to spend too much time, but I want to point out that we have to do part two of the Pontifex Maximus episode, and we really need to dig in deep into the history of what that is to understand where we're at in 2021. It's like we're going into the cyber, the computer age, into the space future of the um, of the far future here. And we have to recognize that they are that we are dealing with a technocracy that's blooming and becoming autocratic and a totalitarian move of the left towards this extremism, having just a tiny, smallest smidge of a percentage of a majority of control in the government. They now are going to try to rewrite the entire foundation and heart of the, the core of the Republican and constitutional foundation that this entire country and, and their pretended supposed powers as congressmen and senators and Supreme Court justices and presidents and vice presidents and so on. They all draw their, their power from these founding documents that they're steadily and rapidly and constantly eroding away. So I don't know, after they absolutely demolish and destroy the Constitution, I don't know what what power they expect to have after that. But perhaps we should just go and do what we do at the Capitol and just go storm into their buildings and cart them all away. I don't see why we shouldn't. I mean, if they're not going to actually stand up for and defend the foundation of the authority of the documents by which they get their own job description, perhaps we should have the same equivalent respect for their jobs as they do and for the Constitution that they do. But let's go on. Let's move on to something that's really intensely fascinating. And it really goes back to the question of the, the Adelid dynasty. And this is, to put it in a short and to a nutshell here, is the, the priest kings of the mystery religion of Babylon. And they were set up for quite a long time there in Babylon and the fascinating history of Babel and Nimrod and going back to the beginning when he first tried to set up a world kingdom, a, a world empire, if you will. And in order to get into the subject matter, we have some really interesting um, clips that we're going to play real quick. And they're just going to be a historical layout to get us up to speed. So let's go ahead and give it a shot here. I think it's going to be the Fuel Project. That's who we're going to be listening to these um, really interesting little excerpts. And it's going to be from the Fuel project and you should check it out. Ham had a son called Cush and through the family line of Cush there came a man called Nimrod. The Bible reports it like this. The descendants of Ham were Cush, Mizraim, Put and Canaan. The descendants of Cush were Seba, Havilah, Sabta, Rama and Sabtika. The descendants of Rama were Sheba and Dedan. Cush was also the ancestor of Nimrod, who was the first heroic warrior on earth. Since he was the greatest hunter in the world, his name became proverbial. People would say, this man is like Nimrod, the greatest hunter in the world. He built his kingdom in the land of Babylonia, with the cities of Babylon, Erech, Akkad, and Kalne. From there he expanded his territory to Assyria, building the cities of Nineveh, Rehoboth-Ir, Kalna, and Resin, the great city located between Nineveh and Kala. 
include verses 6 and 7 in this reference because it's important to note the extra attention given to Nimrod in comparison with the other descendants of Ham. Even so, this only hints at his importance in the history of mankind. He was possibly the first king in world history. This is the first time the word kingdom is mentioned in the Bible. He was master and commander of a vast empire, the first man of renown, the first heroic warrior on earth. But when the Bible reports that Nimrod is the first mighty man in history, a fierce warrior and a great hunter, we should avoid being tempted into thinking highly of him because the Hebrew root of the word for mighty man actually translates into English as tyrant. The Jewish Talmud calls him a hunter of the souls of men and the famous Jewish historian Josephus also talks of Nimrod as a tyrant or dictator. Indeed his name, Nimrod, literally means let us revolt or the rebel. And unlike the other descendants of Ham who mostly ended up in Africa or China, Nimrod, who was believed was born in modern day Ethiopia, headed towards the Tigris-Euphrates Valley. That's right, the exact spot where the Garden of Eden had been. The fact he was returning to the scene of the original fall of man to build his empire is significant in itself. He clearly meant something symbolic by it. Perhaps he was identifying with that scene of original rebellion. Perhaps he was metaphorically trying to build a new Eden by his own power and apart from God. Perhaps he was identifying with Cain by stubbornly returning to the spot that Cain had been expelled from. Perhaps it was all of these reasons. But it was here that he built the city of Babylon. He also built the city of Nineveh nearby and conquered the others that already existed in the area, thus creating his empire. As the first to learn the arts of war, Nimrod ruled and subdued his empire with an iron fist and was noted for his use of sorcery and fire to gain his victories. Like many men of renown in the ancient world, myths and legends arose around him to the extent that it's now impossible to discern which are true and which are not. The city that Nimrod built was Babylon. Now the name Babylon occurs in the Bible around 354 times, mostly in the Old Testament, and is in fact second in importance only to Jerusalem throughout scripture. Biblically, it is always viewed as the devil's city, while Jerusalem is viewed as God's city. They are regularly contrasted with one another and seen in opposition to one another, so we need to understand more about it. By all accounts, Nimrod's Babylon was the first great city of the world, which in turn was the capital of the first great empire of the world. In fact, we have reason to believe that Babylon was the greatest empire of all time. The Babylonian Empire had two eras of prominence, but they both come in times covered by the Old Testament. Its first era of prominence was under the kingship of Nimrod himself, and then later it again came to the fore under the kingship of a man called Nebuchadnezzar. In 539 BC, the Babylonian Empire was attacked and captured by the Persian king, Cyrus the Great. This ended Babylon's status as the most powerful kingdom on earth, and although there is evidence that the city remained an important cultural center, and evidence that there were several rebellions by Babylonians against the new Persian Empire, hoping to re-establish Babylon's superiority, it was never resurrected. The physical empire of Babylon disappeared long ago. This is why when we get to the New Testament, which records events around 500 years after Babylon's demise, there's hardly any mention of it at all. Out of the 354 mentions of Babylon in the Bible, 342 come in the Old Testament. By the time of the New Testament, it had been long gone. Indeed, on the few occasions when it 
is mentioned, it is often just in reference to Old Testament events, except for one notable occasion where Peter uses it as a code word for Rome. This is because by the time of Jesus and the Apostles, the Roman Empire was the new dominant power on the world stage and the Babylon of its day. The curious part of the whole thing, however, comes in Revelation, which prophesies the events that will occur at the end of time. God reveals the future to the writer, John, through a series of visions, and in Revelation 14, 16, 17, and 18, we find frequent references to Babylon. Given that Babylon had been long gone, even by the time Revelation was written, it's intriguing to find God referring to it in the future tense. In Revelation 18.21 we read, Then a mighty angel picked up a boulder the size of a large millstone and threw it into the sea, and said, With such violence the great city of Babylon will be thrown down, never to be found again. Will be thrown down future tense. Revelation 17.5 perhaps has the most famous reference to Babylon. It says, This title was written on her forehead, Mystery Babylon, the great mother of prostitutes and of the abominations of the earth. God's wrath and fury at Babylon is palpable in these passages. He is ready to crush it with such terminal violence that it will never again see the light of day or have any bearing on the world again. He calls it the source of the abominations of the earth. Before we look more at the city of Babylon itself, there's a character we have to quickly introduce ourselves to. Nimrod's wife and queen, a woman known today as Semiramis. It's important we learn about her because in many respects, she may be an even more important figure than her husband. Like Nimrod, it's hard to get an accurate idea of Semiramis that is untainted by legend, but the story goes something like this. When Noah's Ark settled on dry land again after the flood, the eight people on board began to spread out and fill the areas of modern-day Iran, Turkey, and Syria. After probably another 500 to 600 years, they spread still further to Iraq. Some reckon this was simply because of increasing populations, and others say it may have had something to do with rivalries between the family lines of Shem, Ham, and Japheth, Noah's sons. At any rate, modern archaeology confirms that the people who occupied these areas were of the same race and culture, and the most reliable research indicates that it was from this region that animal husbandry, agriculture, metalwork, and citification spread throughout the earth. On this point, science and scripture are agreed. The only difference is the timescales involved. It was in Iraq, or Mesopotamia as it was referred to then, that the first major post-flood cities were built. There were seven major ones in total, and the name, Land of Seven Cities, was often referred to in ancient mythology. These are the seven cities cited in the Bible as being conquered by Nimrod to establish his empire. We can gather that he probably came up from Ethiopia with his army via the Gulf on boats around 1,000 years after the flood. It was in the middle of the conquest of the area that Nimrod apparently met Semiramis. Tradition has it that she was a brothel keeper in the city of Erech. Although we don't know for certain that they met in that brothel, we can reasonably assume that their initial meeting was in quite unsavory and seedy circumstances. Nimrod made her his consort and his queen, but of course it wouldn't do to have a prostitute as a queen, so a story was invented that she was in fact a virgin that had sprung from the sea when Nimrod came ashore on his conquest of the area. This no doubt gave her an air of mystique and intrigue.
Semiramis is actually a Greek form of her name, which was originally Samur Amat, which means gift of the sea. Semiramis rose to a position of power on the basis of her relationship with Nimrod, but as we'll see later, her influence eventually overwhelmingly obscured that of her husbands, both during their lifetimes and in the wider context of history. In appearance, she was noted for being outwardly extremely beautiful, but also for her gross immorality and licentiousness. Along with Nimrod, she helped rule the newly created empire of Babylon. With that cursory introduction to Semiramis, we can now explore the central monument of Nimrod's capital city, the Tower of Babel. This monument, commissioned by Nimrod, would be his power base, his castle, his palace, his throne. It's estimated that around 600,000 people were gathered together for its construction, and we find the motivation for it in Genesis 11 where the people say, Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens, so that we may make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the face of the whole earth. These lofty words may remind you of those spoken by Lucifer and Isaiah and Ezekiel. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven, I will raise my throne above the stars of God, I will sit enthroned on the mount of assembly, on the utmost heights of the sacred mountain, I will ascend above the tops of the clouds, I will make myself like the Most High. Notice the words, sacred mountain, the idea that God resides atop a mountain. It is repeated again in Ezekiel 28 when God says, You sinned, therefore I cast you as a profane thing out of the mountain of God, and I destroyed you. Now the Tower of Babel is often misrepresented in paintings. You'll often see it look something like this. But it was actually a kind of ziggurat, which is a pyramid-like shape. Indeed, from the Babylonian ziggurats, we get similar structures in Egypt, Africa, and South America, remains of which can still be seen today and are amongst the world's most beloved tourist attractions. The reason that they are this particular shape is that they were built to represent mountains. Nimrod built the Tower of Babel to represent a sacred mountain at the top of which he would have his throne room, his heaven, and he would rule from there not just as a king, but as a god. It represents the deification of man, the idea that man can become a god. It is the old serpent's lie from Eden. Nimrod's subjects would have to ascend up the steps of the mountain for his council. In a city full of low-lying, flat-topped roofs, he would literally be the most high amongst them, a constant visual reminder to the people of his supremacy. Wherever they were within Babylon and for miles around, they would see the top of the tower and to know that their king and God was keeping a watchful eye over them from heaven, monitoring their every move. This would strike a mixture of fear and awe into his subjects. Nimrod was the initiator of the idea of emperor worship, although it may not have been his idea originally. Evidence suggests that Semiramis was actually the brains behind this concept, and that it was a clever device for helping them keep a tight grip on their subjects. She appeared to understand that a surefire route to gaining earthly honour, prestige and power is through religious authority. Spiritual authority secures temporal authority. Nimrod was more than happy to go along with it, just as Adam was happy to go along with Eve in the Garden of Eden. By turning himself into a god and establishing emperor worship as a common practice, he maintained control over his subjects. Because of his association with fire and the sun, he became known as the sun god. His consort, Semiramis, 
understandably became associated with the other leading light in the sky, a moon goddess. Around themselves as the sun and moon gods, they created an entire religion that was based on a corruption of primeval astronomy developed by Noah's righteous ancestors prior to the flood. This religion has come to be known as the mystery religion. As we've already noted, the religion created in Babylon by Nimrod and Semiramis is known as the mystery religion, or simply the mysteries. At its core, it was an inverted retelling of the fall of man in Genesis. In the biblical account of the incident, the serpent caused Adam and Eve to sin against God by suggesting they eat the fruit from the tree of knowledge. Because they acted in disobedience to God, who had specifically told them not to eat from that tree, sin entered into the human race, and all the misery, disease, and tragedy that makes up human history stems from that moment. In the Babylonian inversion of this event, however, the serpent is portrayed as the real good God. He was worshipped for opening the eyes of men and for infusing the woman with his passion and lust. He was seen as a liberator and an enlightener. To them, he illuminated the minds of mankind by revealing to them the secret knowledge that God had tried to keep from them. Look again at the all-seeing eye. Notice that it has rays of light emanating from it. This represents the illuminating secret knowledge that he claims to offer, the secret serpent knowledge that could provide mankind with their own salvation and which would see them become gods. That is why the religion is called the Mysteries, because it claims to harbor the secret knowledge that was offered to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. In the Mysteries, the true God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, Yahweh, was portrayed as a wrathful deity of hate who was guilty of opposing freedom of choice. Because Nimrod and Semiramis set themselves up as the sun and moon gods, the religion was also based on a corruption of primeval astronomy. It was believed by Noah's righteous ancestors that the stars told the story of Satan's rebellion against God in heaven, his fall, subversion of mankind, the promise of a Messiah who would suffer and die to lift the curse of sin and then be installed as Lord of creation and conqueror of Satan. These stories were widely known amongst the people of the time. Semiramis, however, again inverted the story and so in the mystery version, the stars of the sky told a different story. In the Babylonian version, Satan was depicted as the rightful lord of the universe, whose throne had only temporarily been usurped by God. One day, an antichrist, a seed of the serpent, would be born of a divine mother, would become God himself, replace God, and return rulership of the world to the serpent. Semiramis claimed that this was the real, hidden truth concealed within the stories. This corrupt and satanic version is the origin of astrology, which still exists virtually unchanged today. The Babylonians didn't just believe the stars told the story of the universe. They believed you could divine the future of individuals through them as well. If the stars told the story of things that had passed, they could also tell the stories of things to come. They would therefore divide the sky into sections and give meanings to each section on the basis of the stars that are found there. According to the theory, a person's destiny is said to be determined by whatever section or sign he is born under. This is the origin of horoscopes. In times to come, astrology would pass to the empire of ancient Egypt, which is the place we most associate with pyramids today. The sacred mountain pyramids were constructed with certain mathematical relationships to the stars. 
the Sphinx also has astrological significance. It has the head of a woman, symbolizing Virgo, the Virgin, and the body of a lion, symbolizing Leo. Virgo is the first sign of the zodiac, and Leo is the last. So the Sphinx, which literally means joining in Greek, is the meeting point of the zodiac, indicating that the Egyptian priests believed Egypt was the center of the universe. By the time Moses led the Jews out of Egypt in Exodus, astrology had also infected the population in Canaan, which was the land that they were headed towards. Hence, some of the strictest warnings in the Bible against astrology date from this period, such as in Leviticus 19.31 and Deuteronomy 18. The biblical denunciations of astrology identify the practice with demonism or Satanism, in the sense that Satan and his hosts were actually being worshipped in the guise of the signs, planets and stars. And as mentioned previously, the leading lights of the sky, sun and moon, were worshipped in the form of Nimrod and Semiramis. Very significantly, a third leading light was identified in the sky that was 23 times more luminous than the sun, and therefore was considered to be the most important star in the sky. This star is known as the Dog Star, Sirius, or the Morning Star, because it's still visible even in the morning light. Remember in Isaiah 14.12, Lucifer is referred to as that name. When aligned with the sun and moon, the morning star completes an unholy trinity of lights personified in Satan, Nimrod and Semiramis. One of the key elements of the mysteries that I also want to emphasize is the hierarchical structure that they contained. The secret illuminating knowledge from the serpent was not to be freely distributed to the unworthy. You would have to become initiated into the religion and then work your way through ascending degrees of revelation and knowledge. This ascension through the levels was considered to be a journey from the darkness of ignorance to the light of knowledge, a process of enlightenment. Progression was propagated by a hierarchy of priests and priestesses and were marked by fearful rites of passage and oaths of secrecy, which, if broken, would lead to death. Similar oaths of secrecy are sworn today by other hierarchical institutions like the Freemasons and Jesuits, but more about them later. The further along in the process you were, the more enlightened you were considered. The hierarchical structure of the mysteries was designed to create inequality amongst men based on what they knew. It can itself be best visualized in the form of a pyramid or a ziggurat again, wide at the base and increasingly narrow as you rise through the levels towards the peak. Vault means hidden or concealed, and it is the modern name by which the ideas of the mysteries have come to be known today. When you have people involved in the occult, the information, knowledge and power that they are trying to tap into is the exact same as that serpent knowledge which originated in Babylon. The idea of occultism retains the concept that there are a powerful, enlightened or illuminated few at the top who see things as they really are and the rest are kept in the dark. Mere ignorant fools. The enlightened few consider the average mass of people to be almost subhuman, like cattle, who deserve to be led like cattle and treated like cattle. This knowledge hierarchy is replicated in almost all occult societies today, like Freemasonry for example and it fulfills an important function of allowing Satan to pervert by small degrees. Those at the lower levels of Freemasonry have absolutely no idea of what they are actually involved in. It is only as they slowly rise through the degrees that they have the true information revealed to them.
By perverting in small stages and in the passing of time, people lose sight of just how far they're straying and can be led to accept things that they would otherwise have flatly rejected if they had been given the full revelation from the start. Just a little change here, a little change there, it's not so much. And yet with enough small changes and with enough time, a person or society can be completely transformed without even realising it. This kind of system that needs to keep knowledge concealed from the masses, by its very nature, necessitates the use of symbolism, gestures, monuments, secret words and signs to ensure that those in the dark are kept in the dark. That's why the occult makes heavy use of these devices. They use symbols that are packed with meaning for the initiated, but which mean absolutely nothing to the average man. By using symbols, information can be communicated by being hidden in plain sight. That is, they are in the open air for all to see, but they are not recognized or interpreted by the average person. It is also for this reason that the occult always hides behind outward facades of neutrality, goodness, or even holiness. From Nimrod onwards, Babylon's supreme rulers had derived their authority basically from three titles. King, God, and High Priest. Their kingship gave them political or temporal authority, while their high priesthood and godhood gave them infallible spiritual authority. Both earthly and heavenly authority converged in the one rule. Now when Babylon was overthrown by the Medo-Persians, their king, high priest and god at the time was Belshazzar. Belshazzar was killed and so for the first time there was no direct successor to rule over the earthly Babylonian kingdom. But more importantly for us, there was no direct successor to the high priesthood of the mysteries. No figurehead. Not only that, but all the priests and sorcerers of the religion fled from Babylon to Pergamos, which is situated in modern-day western Turkey. There was this brief moment of chaos. However, when the priests arrived in Pergamos from Babylon, they set about turning it into the new power base for the mysteries and established a new central college for the religion in the area. Perhaps more importantly, they placed the king of Pergamos at the time into the vacant seat of spiritual power left by Belshazzar, and he was hailed as the new high priest of the religion. And so for a time at least, the power base of the mystery religion moved from Babylon to Turkey. It is at least partly for this reason that the Lord refers to Pergamos as Satan's seat in Revelation 2.13. This is part of the building that existed there. Like the Ishtar Gate, this monument to Satan survives until the modern day in Berlin, Germany, having been taken there by Kaiser Wilhelm II, who was fascinated with the occult in 1902. He was well aware of its significance, and upon seeing it rebuilt in Germany, Wilhelm stated that it was the proudest moment of his reign. As the power base of the mysteries in ancient Pergamos, this monument may perhaps be considered the literal seat of Satan, a scene of ancient emperor worship and ritual slaughter of Christians. It was also during this brief time at Pergamos, which incidentally means height or elevation, where the god Aesculapius was worshipped in the form of a serpent. The name Aesculapius in Greek means instructing snake, and he was worshipped as a god of healing and one who enlightened the souls of men by the power of the sun. He was supposed to appear in serpent form and was symbolized as one entwined around a pole. In his temple were kept numerous live snakes and the people would come to bathe in the water of the sacred spring where they would apparently be given instruction for their healing. So it's interesting to find that this logo is still used for healthcare today. You may also see the following, 
This is called a caducus and is actually a result of confusion by people in the late 19th century who thought it represented the same thing as Aesculapius. This symbol has ancient associations with commerce, eloquence, deception and trickery, but it's still used for healthcare today regardless. You may notice it includes a winged sun disk. This symbol is normally associated with Egypt, but was used by several other cultures. Thomas Milton Stewart explains, Horus, the virgin-born redeemer of the Egyptians, came into the world to destroy the enemies of the great sun god Ra. Therefore Horus changed himself into the form of the winged sun disk and took with him the goddesses Nekbet and Uachit in the form of two serpents. After their successful war upon the enemies of Ra, Horus commanded Thoth, the god of secret wisdom, that the winged sun disk with the erect serpent should be brought into every sanctuary of all the gods of all the lands of the south and north. So associated with many of our healthcare systems, we have the serpent's so-called secret wisdom, sun disks, and symbolism associated with deception. If we place our healthcare systems in the hands of that serpent and look to him for secret wisdom for healing, rather than God, don't be surprised if it doesn't work or bring sickness and drug dependencies instead of health. It is estimated that well over half of all Americans are now on prescription drugs for chronic illnesses and that they now kill 300% more people than illegal drugs do. Not to mention that we now use our healthcare for death rather than healing and abortions, and we'll come to that again later. The situation at Pergamos lasted for several hundred years until around 133 BC when Attalus, the last king of Pergamos, died and left in his will all his dominions to the Roman people. Thus, the kingdom of Pergamos merged entirely into Rome and once again no one could openly lay claim to the title of high priest of the Babylonian mysteries. The position was vacant once more. At the time, the Roman Republic did not consider its rulers to be gods in the Babylonian style. This all changed, however, with Julius Caesar. It seemed to take a while for Julius Caesar to realize the significance of what he had inherited from Attalus of Pergamos. But when he did, he duly conformed to the Babylonian system. He assumed the position of supreme ruler of Rome, and it became an empire, thus confirming his kingship. He also made himself high priest in 63 BC, a full 70 years after the death of Attalus, therefore establishing himself as the legitimate successor to the head of the Babylonian mysteries. To complete the Babylonian system set, he then also declared himself to be a god, exclaiming on 25th of December 48 BC in Jupiter's temple in Alexandria that he was in fact Jupiter's incarnation. The Encyclopedia Britannica says about Julius Caesar, there are signs that in the last six months of his life, he aspired not only to a monarchy in name as well as in fact, but also a divinity which Romans should acknowledge as well as Greeks, Orientals and Barbarians. He seemed to slowly realize that his new titles, particularly High Priest, gave him legitimate claim to be not just ruler over Rome, but ruler over all the peoples who subscribed to the Babylonian system as they had all descended from the same source. With the position of high priest re-established once more, a new chain of links were in place and it could be passed down through the succession of rulers in Rome. It was from Julius Caesar's name that the subsequent Roman emperors took the name Caesar, which was thereafter a title invested with kingship, priesthood and godhood. This fact gives added poignancy to the trial of Jesus before Pontius Pilate. When Pilate brought Jesus before the Jews, he asked them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. 
What they were effectively saying is that their true God was not their king. Their only king was Caesar, head of the Babylonian mysteries and the earthly head of the satanic system of worship. It was another of those straight choices between two kingdoms, as all choices of this type are. In that declaration, they chose the kingdom of darkness. They paid the penalty for that declaration too. Just as the Lord gave the Jews into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar after they corrupted themselves with the worship of Baal in the Old Testament, so he gave that generation of Jews into the hands of the Roman emperors who they professed to follow as punishment. In 70 AD under Titus, and some decades after they had made their declaration at the trial of Jesus that he was not their king, the Roman army marched upon Jerusalem and destroyed it along with the temple. Thus Babylon and Rome have in common that they both destroyed the temple in Jerusalem. The gospel eventually reached Rome, which was the epicenter of the greatest empire in the world at the time. What happened here would have particular significance because what was decided in this city would be carried across Europe and the earth to its furthest outposts. So what did happen here? Christianity dropped into the midst of a city completely under the spell of Babylonian worship and whose emperor was the current high priest of the mysteries. Not an easy beginning. The people of Rome were thoroughly indoctrinated with the habits, superstitions and traditions that had originated with Nimrod and Semiramis. To be honest, it was a cesspit. Therefore, it should come as no surprise to learn that Christians were bitterly persecuted by the Romans. The claim that particularly infuriated Roman emperors was that Jesus was the way, the truth and the life and that no one comes to the Father except by me, as he said in John 4.16. This was a direct challenge to their position as gods. Christians utterly denied all pagan gods and refused to bow down to any of them, knowing that in doing so they would be bound down to demons and by proxy be bound to Satan himself. This meant that whenever a tragedy occurred in Rome, Christians were made scapegoats, being blamed for bringing the wrath of the gods upon the people because of their unwillingness to sacrifice, appease or pay tribute to them. Christians' unwillingness to bow to emperors as gods was also considered an act of sedition. The consequent brutality of the Roman Empire towards Christians has gone down in infamy. Once captured, Christians were thrown to lions for sport in Colosseums, while the baying crowd watched them being torn limb from limb. They were dipped in oil and then set alight at the side of the roads to become living human torches. Another method of execution was being sewn into animal skins and then led to die at the fangs and claws of wild animals. Some were noted to have had crowns of metal nailed into their heads. The book of Hebrews in the Bible reports that some were placed inside a hollowed out tree and then sawn in half. It wasn't until Emperor Constantine who signed the Edict of Milan in 312 AD that allowed for the tolerance of Christianity that the persecution really came to an end. Now the world at large traditionally sees this as the best thing that could ever have happened to Christianity, but I'm going to suggest it wasn't. You see, while many believe this was the pivotal moment in Christian history that allowed it to settle and grow and to become the largest religion in the world, the evidence suggests that firstly, Constantine only legalized Christianity for political reasons and that his own supposed conversion wasn't truly sincere. For example, there's evidence to show that Constantine still retained many elements of sun worship even after his supposed conversion and that there have been reports of secret Vatican files that prove he kept his allegiance to the sun god. Coins carrying his image from this period continue to portray him as soli invicto comit, which means colleague of the invincible sun.
Then there's the fact that he changed the traditional Sabbath day of God, which was Saturday, to the now generally accepted Sunday or Sun God Day. Constantine's personal life also reflected the theory that he hadn't ever truly converted to Christianity or understood its message. He became a cruel and dissolute monarch whose cruelty extended to members of his own family. He was also clearly corrupted by his fortune. If we judge the tree by its fruits, we would reasonably conclude that he remained untouched by the love of Christ until the end. The truth is that there was such uproar and division in the Roman Empire at the time that its unity was beginning to be threatened. If the unity of Rome was threatened, so was Constantine's grip on power. Persecution of anything was making the Christians stronger, so from Constantine onwards, the persecution and killing stopped and instead Christian leaders were manipulated and lured with promises of wealth and power. Constantine basically appealed to the vanity and pride of the bishops of the time. He went on a charm offensive and bestowed a number of favours on the church. Instead of martyring bishops, he began to treat them as his political aides and gave them a say in his empire's political affairs. They were raised to a high rank and given a life of great opulence in the imperial city. Very naturally and predictably, signs of worldliness appeared amongst them, like pursuit of luxury and personal ambition. Error and corruption began entering the church and a focus on wealth acquisition crept in. They forgot Jesus' pronouncement that his kingdom is not of this world in John 18.36 and soon became double-minded. One of the main reasons we should suspect Constantine never truly converted was that he failed to relinquish his inherited title of Supreme Pontiff or High Priest that had first been assumed by Julius Caesar. Constantine therefore remained the official earthly head of the mysteries throughout his life. It wasn't until 376 AD that the young Emperor Gratian became the first to refuse the position of Supreme Pontiff, considering it inconsistent with faith in Christ. In addition, he also legally abolished paganism in the empire at this time, although this abolition didn't extend to the city of Rome itself, where it was still rampant. In fact, Rome at this time was colloquially referred to as the sink of all superstitions. After Gratian refused the office of supreme pontiff or high priest, it became vacant once more, and the links in the chain that had gone back to Nimrod were broken, but only for two years. It was soon reinstated to Damascus, the then Bishop of Rome, who had gained the position after much fighting and bloodshed with rivals. This position of Supreme Pontiff has been held by the Bishop of Rome ever since. The Bishop of Rome is better known today as the Pope, and therefore the Catholic Pope is still the head of the Mysteries of Babylon and its pagan offshoots today. If we follow this to its logical conclusion, as shocking as this may sound, the Pope is therefore still the earthly head of Satan's system of worship. Stanley's history on page 40 says, The Popes filled the place of the vacant emperors at Rome, inheriting their power, their prestige and their titles from paganism. Pope Damascus recognised the power inherent in his new title. He believed himself to be head over not just the Christian Church, but also over the pagans in Rome. It meant complete authority and domination both the secular and sacred under one system. How is the Roman Church to consolidate this rule over the pagans and the Christians under one system? They needed to somehow iron out the differences between the Babylonian system and the Christian system to create a unity between all peoples, and that meant compromise. What the Catholic Church did was consistently compromise the gospel message with pre-existing pagan beliefs and adapted it based on whatever form of Babylonian mysticism a culture held to.
And compromising the truth with different types of lies is like mixing ice cream with different types of dirt. At the end of the day, all you're left with is dirt. So while the average historian will explain that from 378 AD onwards, within 50 years, the spread of Christianity had completely vanquished paganism in Rome, that's not what happened. Paganism had not vanished. At the beginning of the 5th century, it had simply been absorbed into Roman Catholicism, which now contained all manner of superstitious rites and ceremonies inherited from Babylon. Pagan doctrines, rites and symbols were incorporated into the church and merely covered with a facade of Christianity. It was this, and not an outpouring of the Spirit, that brought a multitude of pagan worshippers into the Church of Rome. Catholicism basically became paganism with a Christian mask. It was after this time that the words of warning given by the Apostle Paul to Timothy began to be fulfilled. The Spirit clearly says that in later times some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. They forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and who know the truth. Celibacy, compulsory fasting, idolatry and baptismal regeneration and many other false ideas quickly became the accepted doctrines of the church. I'll give you an example of what I mean. One of the main differences between Christianity and paganism was that Christianity was monotheistic while paganism was polytheistic. Trying to get the pagans to give up their multiple gods proved tricky and so, in order to merge the two systems, the Roman Church began to suggest the idea of patron saints. In effect, what they said was, you don't need to stop praying to all these various gods and goddesses. All you have to do is call them by a new name. Instead of a god of the travellers, we'll appoint a saint of the travellers. Instead of a god of the sea, there is now a saint for seafarers, etc. So where there had previously been a pagan god or goddess assigned to aspects of daily life in the mystery system, the Catholic Church merely replaced these gods with saints who were to be prayed to, revered and looked to for guidance instead. Because many people had carved idols of gods and goddesses in their house, they weren't asked to discard them completely, but just to revere them under a new name and identity. All the many pictures and images that existed because of the mother and child cults of the day and which originally represented Semiramis and Tammuz were simply renamed Mother Mary and Christ. The paganism was not removed, it was just given a makeover. Another problem for effecting change was the festivals of the day. People's years were marked by religious holidays much like our own are today. Imagine trying to get everyone in the world to give up Christmas next year. It would be a nearly insurmountable task. People love their holidays. The Catholic Church decided that instead of abandoning the old pagan holidays, they would simply adopt them under a new meaning. The winter solstice festival called Saturnalia, or the Feast of Saturn in Rome, occurred in the week prior to the 25th of December, and the day itself was called Natalis Invictus Solis, which means the birthday of the unconquered sun. Indeed, 25th of December was widely regarded by all Babylonian religions to be the birthday of Nimrod. It's a day that crops up frequently. In Egypt, Isis, who is the equivalent of Ashtoreth, and who was worshipped as the Queen of Heaven, was said to be born in this state also. So what did the Catholics do? Effectively, they said, keep your festival, but let's just adopt it as the birthday of Jesus Christ instead. Similarly, the Spring Equinox Festival for the Goddess of Fertility, associated with regeneration, was adopted as Easter. 
the name Astarte or Ishtar became Easter in Gaelic, and it's from this name that we get the word Easter. Eggs that originally represented fertility were Christianized as a representation of the stone that was rolled away from the front of Jesus' tomb. It was also as a result of merging Babylon with the church that the idea of Lent was introduced. Lent has no biblical basis whatsoever, but was merely an essential part of the Babylonian spring festivals that Catholics adopted under a new meaning. In autumn, there was a harvest festival that honoured the goddess Pomona, and this became Christianized as All Souls Day, with All Saints Day coming on the 1st of November to again honour the saints. It is better known today as Halloween, the night where evil is celebrated most overtly. As a night to honour the Catholic saints, it is effectively a night to honour demons. The practice of bobbing for apples originated with the celebration of Pomona, who is the goddess of fruit and trees. In this, we may also see a link to the Tree of Knowledge. Can we say that bobbing for apples is a reenactment and celebration of the moment when Adam and Eve ate of that tree? As the Roman Empire spread to Celtic areas, where the mysteries had become Druidism, the date became a night to honour the god Samhain. Now note the similarity between the names Samhain and Satan. What this all adds up to is simply that when it was made legal in Rome, Catholicism did not Christianise the pagan religions, but that the reverse is true. The pagan religions polluted Christianity to produce Catholicism. Catholicism gradually became nothing more than the mystery religion with a Christian facade. So we're going to just break away from that. That's actually a series that has 77 episodes, and I broke down a bunch of the episodes for you to the kind of you know necessary aspects of the of the episodes that are relevant to our conversation that we're having here. So he does a really good job of focusing in on the topic at hand and really kind of breaking down the really complex and multi-layered background that comes into play in this discussion. So we're going to go back over several, probably 500 centuries, really zoom in on what's the most important aspects of the, the information here. And it's really not just a focus on the, the biblical sense or the Christian viewpoint of this, but really these scriptural aspects, these background histories that come out of the Bible are also very important to Freemasons and occultists too who look at them as a way to understand what they view as the, the enlightening of mankind by the spiritual forces that we describe as Lucifer. And they would describe the satanic element as the same thing as God, so that they look at Adam and Eve as having escaped the clutches of God by the help of Lucifer. And that's really what you're getting down to when you get to the New Age teachings and these new theosophy teachings and the um, the occult teachings are really going to show that the God that was Moses' God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob was really some kind of like dark deity who destroyed Babylon and destroyed Egypt with the, the plagues and was therefore an evil God and not a, a friendly, benevolent God. And so they like to look at Lucifer as the light bearer, as the one who gave human, human beings the the fruit to eat for the fruit of knowledge so that we could be free. And so they look at Lucifer as the, the hero. And that's just something that it's, it, it's ultimately an inverted hermeneutic so that they're going to look at the, the God Jehovah in the Bible as the enemy 
and that's their, their operating thesis. So they look at people who are Christians and followers of Jehovah, the God of the Bible, as as really just darkened and uh, fools who have been misled and misguided, and they seek out the knowledge of Lucifer, and they expect that they'll be uh, rewarded with wisdom and power and life and see all these ideologies line up in organizations like the United Nations who are very anti-Semitic and really against the nation of Israel and ultimately against the biblical theology and they're really going to uplift all these Luciferian kind of ideals and these really what, what comes what it comes down to is they're the, the mystery schools which are secret knowledge and initiated degrees of secret societies who really ultimately worship astrology and worship the sun and the moon and worship these ancient ideas of geometry and um, sacred knowledge, sacred geometry and so on. And that's really what we're getting down to here is we're showing that the world system of horoscopes and star signs and hey I'm a Scorpio and you're a Pisces and all those kind of that kind of antiquated thinking is really coming out of really Rome and it was really bequeathed to Rome ultimately by the priest kings of Babylon who were the high priests and the supreme pontifex maximus of the mystery cults of Babylon. And ultimately what we were getting to in these episodes is, and he focused on two different times if you were listening, but that Babylon ultimately was defeated by the Medo-Persian empire and the Medes and the Persians came in, destroyed Babylon and sent the, it was Cyrus the Great, and he, they sent the the priest kings, the, the, the hierophants, they, they were like the pharaohs the the uh, the god kings of the which were their, which became the Adela dynasty and they sent them away and they drove them out basically and they fled to Pergamos which was in Turkey so we're establishing this kind of hidden part of history in order to show how the progression of this mystery college this this ultimate secret society this this secret gnostic system of degrees and initiation rites actually travel and how it moved through history. But in order to really establish these data points, I'm going to go ahead and read this interesting article I found online. And I have a lot of material, so I want to try to move through it pretty rapidly here. But this um, article is called Priests of Babylon Moved to Today's Turkey. They Became the Kings of Pergamum. Nebuchadnezzar's successor, Ul Marduk, set the stage for the submission of the empire to the Medo-Persians. Weakened over the next few decades by internal divisions, the strongly fortified Babylon fell without a fight in 539 BC to Cyrus the Great's forces. The Persians were generally tolerant toward the nations they defeated, allowing them to retain their culture and religion. An example of their permissive attitude came soon after the fall of Babylon. Cyrus issued a proclamation returning the Jewish captives to Babylon to Jerusalem with instructions to rebuild the temple destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. Though the Persians did not initially interfere in Babylon's religious practices, the political power of the Babylonian priesthood, who were Chaldean magi, eventually became a problem. The temple had always been central to Babylonian life, with an entire culture and economy surrounding the ziggurat of Marduk. As a result, the Chaldean priests were a powerful elite. They were often more powerful than the Babylonian king himself. The monarch had to acknowledge the priest's intermediary role and take the hands of Marduk before assuming the throne. The king thus became the son of the god and was obliged to protect the religious hierarchy. The priests, frustrated by the Persians' tolerance, when in an 
an attempt to retain their behind-the-scenes political power, they installed one of their own priests posing as the king's brother, Smerdis, as ruler of Babylon. The impostor was discovered and killed by the Persians following a subsequent revolt when the priests again set up their Babylonian ruler. The Persian king Xerxes came and destroyed Babylon in 487 BC. In the process, he tore down the temples and removed the statue of Marduk. At this point, around 480 BC, the Babylonian priests are thought to have left the city and reestablished their base elsewhere. According to one source, the defeated Chaldeans fled to Asia Minor and fixed their central college at Pergamos and took the Palladium of Babylon, the cubic stone, with them here, independent of their state control. They carried on the rights of their religion. That's a quote from William B. Barker, Lairs and Penate, or Sicily and its governors, and it was posted or published in 1853, and that was page 232. And we continue. The Attila dynasty ruled an empire with their capital at Pergamum during the 3rd and 2nd century BCE, fighting for their place in the turbulent world following the death of Alexander the Great. The Attilids briefly flourished with Pergamum becoming a great Hellenistic city famed for its culture, library, and its great altar. For in the year 133 BC, the young king of Pergamon, Attalus III, died, leaving his territory and his treasure to the city and people of Rome. While Attalus' bequest had some precedent, it was nevertheless unusual and was the first to be accepted by Rome. Its acceptance and had consequences and affected the subsequent course of Roman history. Bible scholars further indicate that the Chaldean priesthood did not make Pergamus their final home. When the city was given to Rome, the priesthood sought out the new power center and moved to the Italian peninsula. Within the pagan Roman Empire, they were able to continue their ancient Chaldean practices. This influence gradually extended into Roman Christianity. According to John Woolvard, Ch uh, Chancellor of Dallas Theological Seminary, when the teachers of the Babylonian mystery religions later moved from Pergamon to Rome, they were influential in paganism, Christianity, and were of many so-called religious rites, which have crept into ritualistic churches. This little article seems to help us to trace, historically speaking, the movement and the progression and the continuation of the, the cult of Babylon, this ritualistic mystery religion that really began back with Nimrod and continued as this emperor worship and this um, priest king who would uh, eventually be epitomized in the person of Nebuchadnezzar, who was famous in, in the Old Testament Bible scriptures as having come to Jerusalem and confronted Jerusalem and destroyed it. And, and they got a set, they took some of the implements of God, of, of Yahweh, out of the temple and kept them and kept them in the temple there in Babylon. So Babylon was considered to be the great empire of the entire earth until the Medo-Persians came and destroyed it, ultimately. But the religious system of cult, ritual, and esoteric rites and practices and their actual initiation uh, praxis that they had in Babylon didn't just disappear when the Persians took over. In fact, it carried on for a long time, then eventually there was a, a conflict, a power struggle, and was forced out. So and, and rather than disappear or be destroyed or be uh, annihilated by the new imperium of the Persians, the priest kings would leave and go take up resident and set up their mystery college there in Pergamos. 
and there it would last. And we see that it lasted for many centuries to continue on until finally, when the last priest king died, Attalus III, he, he passed his title, his power, and his throne and his authority on to Rome. And so you can see that symbolically, he did this because he recognized that Rome was ultimately the new center of power and um, the new Babylon. So in order to um, go forward, we have a lot of material to cover. I want to play this interesting little um, clip here. And it's really just a, a, a basic definition of the term Pontifex Maximus. And this is really what we're getting at. We're trying to unravel the ancient esoteric foundations for this, this titular religio-cultic construct was basically giving way and being passed on. And, and it didn't disappear, This the concept of the, the high priest of the Babylonian mysteries or the Pontifex Maximus was a, a something that didn't disappear, but as the uh, the author described in the article, it was something that changed the direction and the fate and the destiny of Rome forever. So we have this little Latin tutorial, so let me just play it for you here. The Pontifex Maximus was the chief priest in Rome, an office that slowly gained political power in the Republic, with both Julius Caesar and Augustus holding the office, and eventually it became part of the official duties of the emperor. Maximus is easy, that means greatest, and is used to represent the, you know, boss. But Pontifex is much harder to define. We can assume that it comes from Pons, bridge, and facere, to make, literally a bridge builder. And the pontiffs were in charge of building and repairing the Pons Obliquius, this old sacred wooden bridge spanning the Tiber River built in the 7th century BC. There's another tradition that Pontifex comes from Posse, to be able, and facere, Pontifex as an abbreviation of Potentifex, because pontiffs were only in charge of what was possible. But this is likely wrong. The bridge builder origin is just too convincing, especially when you consider that the Pontifex Maximus builds the bridge between mankind and the gods. And this word has kept its sacred status to today, where the Pope is known as the Pontiff, even on his Twitter account. So it seems like a good point right now to just add in this little reading that I have here of, of an important book on this topic called The Two Babylons, which you should check it out. It was written probably 100 years ago by a man called um, Alexander Hislop. And he has, this is a rather controversial book that people have a lot of criticism about, but he has some very interesting things to say about the Babylonian history behind the power base that was built up in the Roman Caesar, starting with Julius Caesar, and then eventually segue in, in a chain of succession over time into the papacy. So let's go ahead and give this a listen to. If there be any who imagine that there is some occult and mysterious virtue in the apostolic succession that comes through the Pope, let them seriously consider the real character of the Pope's own orders and of those of his bishops and clergy. From the Pope downward, all can be shown to be now radically Babylonian. The College of Cardinals with the Pope at its head is just a counterpart of the pagan College of Pontiffs with its Pontifex Maximus, or Sovereign Pontiff, which had existed in Rome from the earliest times and which is known to have been framed of the model of the Grand Original Council of Pontiffs at Babylon. The Pope now pretends to supremacy in the Church as the successor of Peter, to whom it is alleged that our Lord exclusively committed the keys of the kingdom of heaven. But here is the important fact that till the Pope was invested with a title which for a thousand years had had attached to it the powers of the keys of Janus and Sibeli, no such claim to preeminence or anything approaching to it was ever publicly made on his part on the ground of his being the possessor of the keys bestowed on Peter. 
was only in the second century before the Christian era that the worship of Cybele under that name was introduced into Rome. But the same goddess under the name of Cardia, with the power of the key, was worshipped in Rome along with Janos ages before. Quote from Ovid's Fasti. Very early indeed did the Bishop of Rome show a proud and ambitious spirit, but for the first three centuries their claim for superior honor was founded simply on the dignity of their see, as being that of the imperial city, the capital of the Roman world. When, however, the seat of empire was removed to the east and Constantinople threatened to eclipse Rome, some new ground for maintaining the dignity of the Bishop of Rome must be sought. That new ground was found when about 378 AD the Pope fell heir to the keys that were the symbols of the well-known pagan divinities at Rome. Janus bore a key and Cybele bore a key. These are the two keys that the Pope emblazons on his arms as the ensigns of his spiritual authority. How the Pope came to be regarded as wielding the power of these keys will appear in the sequel, but that he did in a popular apprehension become entitled to that power at the period referred to as certain. Now when he had come in the estimation of the pagans to occupy the place of the representatives of Janus and Cybele, and therefore to be entitled to bear their keys, the Pope saw that if he could only get it believed among the Christians that Peter alone had the power of the keys and that he was Peter's successor, then the sight of these keys would keep up the delusion, and thus, though the temporal dignity of Rome as a city should decay, his own dignity as the Bishop of Rome would be more firmly established than ever. On this policy, it is evident he acted. Some time was allowed to pass away, and then, when the secret working of the mystery of iniquity had prepared the way for it, for the first time did the Pope publicly assert his preeminence as founded on the keys given to Peter. About 378 AD was he raised to the position which gave him, in pagan estimation, the power of the keys referred to. In 432 AD, and not before, did he publicly lay claim to the possession of Peter's keys. This surely is a striking coincidence. As the case with Peter the Christian, it can be shown to be by no means doubtful that before the Christian era and downwards there was a Peter at Rome who occupied the highest place in the pagan priesthood. The priest who explained the mysteries to the initiated was sometimes called by a Greek term the Hierophant, but in primitive Chaldee, the real language of the mysteries, his title as pronounced without the points was Peter, the interpreter. As the revealer of that which was hidden, nothing was more natural than that while opening up the esoteric doctrine of the mysteries, he should be decorated with the keys of the two divinities whose mysteries he unfolded. The Turkish muftis or interpreters of the Koran derived that name from the very same verb as that from which came miftah, the key. Mafteach in Hebrew is the key. Thus we may see how the keys of Janus and Cybele would come to be known as the keys of Peter, the interpreter of the mysteries. Yea, we have the strongest evidence that in countries far removed from one another and far distant from Rome, these keys were known by initiated pagans not merely as the keys of Peter, but as the keys of a Peter identified with Rome. In the Eleusian mysteries at Athens, when the candidates for initiation were instructed in the secret doctrines of paganism, the explanation of that doctrine was read to them out of a book called by ordinary writers the book Petroma, that is, as we're told, a book formed of stone. But this is evidently just a play upon the words, according to the usual spirit of paganism, intended to amuse and, dist and distract the vulgar.
The nature of the case and the history of the mysteries alike show that this book could be none other than the book Pet Roma, that is, the book of the Grand Interpreter, and in other words, of Hermes Trismegistus, the great interpreter of the gods. In Egypt, from which Athens derived its religion, the books of Hermes were regarded as the divine fountain of all true knowledge of the mysteries. In Egypt, therefore, Hermes was looked up to in this very character of grand interpreter, or Peter Roma. In Athens, Hermes, as it's well known, occupied precisely the same place, and of course in the sacred language must have been known by the same title. The following are the authorities for the statement in the text. Jan Blichus says that Hermes, meaning the Egyptian, was the god of all celestial knowledge, which being communicated by him to his priests, authorized him to inscribe their commentaries with the name of Hermes, Wilkinson. Again, according to the fabulous accounts of the Egyptian Mercury, he was reported to have taught men the proper mode of approaching the deity with prayers and sacrifice, Wilkinson. Hermes Trismegistus seems to have been regarded as a new incarnation of Tot and possessed of higher honors. The principal books of this Hermes, according to Clemens of Alexandria, were treated by the Egyptians with the most profound respect and carried in their religious processions. processions. In Egypt, PETR was used in this very sense. Compare Bunzen hieroglyphs, where PTR is said to signify to show. The interpreter was called Hierophantes, which has the very idea of showing in it. The Athenian or Grecian Hermes is celebrated as the source of invention. He bestows two theses on souls by unfolding the will of the father of Jupiter, and this he accomplishes as the angel or messenger of Jupiter. He is the guardian of disciplines because the invention of geometry, reasoning, and language is referred to this god. He presides, therefore, over every species of erudition, leading us to an intangible essence from this mortal abode, governing the different herds of souls. Compare Proclus in commentary on first Alcibiades and Taylor's Orphicums. The Greek Hermes was so essentially the revealer or interpreter of divine things that Hermenudes or Hermeneutics, an interpreter, was currently said to come from his name. The priest, therefore, that in the name of Hermes explained the mysteries, must have been decked not only with the keys of Peter, but with the keys of Peter Roma. Here, then, the famous book of stone begins to appear in a new light, and not only so, but to shed new light on one of the darkest and most puzzling passages of papal history. It has always been a matter of amazement, so to candid historical inquirers, how it could ever have come to pass that the name of Peter should be associated with Rome, and in the way in which it is found from the 4th century downwards, how so many in different countries had been led to believe that Peter, who was an apostle of the circumcision, had apostatized from his divine commission and become bishop of a Gentile church, and that he should be spiritual ruler in Rome, when no satisfactory evidence could be found for his ever having been in Rome at all. But the book of Peter Roma accounts for what otherwise is entirely inexplicable. The existence of such a title was too valuable to be overlooked by the papacy, and according to its usual policy, it was sure, if it had the opportunity, to turn it to the account of its own aggrandizement, and that opportunity it had. When the Pope came, as he did, into intimate connection with the pagan priesthood, when they came at last, as we shall see they did, under his control, what more natural than to seek not only to reconcile paganism and Christianity, but to make it appear that the pagan pet 
Oklahoma with his keys named Peter of Rome. And that, that Peter of Rome was the very apostle to whom the Lord Jesus Christ gave the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And from the mere jingle of words, persons, and things essentially different were confounded, and paganism and Christianity jumbled together, that the towering ambition of a wicked priest might be gratified. And so to the blinded Christians of the apostasy, the Pope was the representative of Peter the Apostle, while to the initiated pagans he was only the representative of Peter, the interpreter of their well-known mysteries. Thus was the Pope the express counterpart of Janus the double-faced. Oh, what an emphasis of meaning in a scriptural expression as applied to the papacy and the mystery of iniquity. The reader will now be prepared to understand how it is that the Pope's Grand Council of State, which assists him in the government of the Church, comes to be called the College of Cardinals. The term cardinal derived from cardo, a hinge. Janus, whose key the Pope bears, was the god of doors and hinges, and was called Patrucius and Clusius, the opener and shutter. This had a blasphemous meaning, for he was worshipped at Rome as the grand mediator. Whatever important business was in hand, whatever deity was to be invoked, an invocation, first of all, must be addressed to Janus, who was recognized as the god of gods, in whose mysterious divinity the characters of father and son were combined, and without that no prayer could be heard. The door of heaven could not be opened. It was this same God whose worship prevailed so exceedingly in Asia Minor at the time when our Lord sent by his servant John the seven apocalyptic messages to the churches established in that region. And therefore, in one of these messages, we find him tacitly rebuking the profane ascription of his own peculiar dignity to that divinity and asserting his exclusive claim to the prerogative usually attributed to his rival. Thus, Revelation 3, 7, and to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write this, These things says he that is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one shuts, and shuts and no one opens. Now to this Janus as mediator, worshipped in Asia Minor, and equally from very early times in Rome, belonged the government of the world. And all power in heaven, in earth, and the sea, according to pagan ideas, was vested in him. In this character he was said to have Jus Veltendi Cantinis, power of turning the hinge, of opening the doors of heaven, or opening or shutting the gates of peace or war upon earth. The Pope, therefore, when he set up as the high priest of Janus, assumed also the use of Antendi Cardinis, the power of turning the hinge, of opening and shutting in the blasphemous pagan sense. Slowly and cautiously at first was his power asserted, but the foundation being laid steadily century after century was the grand superstructure of priestly power erected upon it. The pagans who saw what strides under papal directions Christianity as professed in Rome was making towards paganism were more than content to recognize the Pope as possessing this power. They gladly encouraged him to rise step by step to the full height of the blasphemous pretensions befitting the representative of Janus, pretensions which, as all men know, are now, by the unanimous consent of Western apostate Christendom, recognized as inherent in the office of the Bishop of Rome. To enable the Pope, however, to rise to the full plenitude of power which he now asserts, the cooperation of others was needed. When his power increased, when his dominion extended, and especially after he became a temporal sovereign, the key of Janus became too heavy for his single hand. He needed some to share within the power of the hinge. Hence his private counselors, his high functionaries of state, who were associated with him in the government of the church and the world, got the now well-known title of Cardinal, the 
priest of the hinge. This title had been previously borne by the high officials of the Roman Emperor, who as Pontifex Maximus had been himself the representative of Janus, and who dedicated his power to servants of his own. Even in the reign of Theodosius, the Christian Emperor of Rome, the title of Cardinal was borne by his prime ministers. But now both the name and the power implied in the name have long since disappeared from all civil functionaries of temporal sovereigns. And those only who aid the Pope in wielding the key of Janus, in opening and shutting, are known by the title of cardinals or priests of the hinge. I have said that the Pope became the representative of Janus, who, it is evident, was not other than the Babylonian Messiah. If the reader only considers the blasphemous assumptions of the papacy, he will see how exactly it has copied from its original. In the countries where the Babylonian system was most thoroughly developed, we find the sovereign pontiff of the Babylonian god investing with the very attributes now ascribed to the Pope. Is the Pope called the God upon earth, the vice-god and vicar of Jesus Christ? The king in Egypt, who was sovereign pontiff, was, says Wilkinson, regarded with the highest reverence as the representative of the divinity on earth. Wilkinson shows that the king had the right of enacting laws and of ma managing all the affairs of religion and the state, which proves him to have been sovereign pontiff. Is the Pope infallible, and does the Church of Rome in consequence boast that it has always been unchanged and unchangeable? The same was the case with the Chaldean Pontiff and the system over which he presided. The sovereign pontiff, says the writer just quoted, was believed to be incapable of error, and in consequence there was the greatest respect for the sanctity of old edicts, and hence, no doubt, also the origin of the custom that the laws of the Medes and Persians could not be altered. Thus the Pope received the adorations of the cardinals, the king of Babylon, as sovereign pontiff was adored in like manner. Wilkinson's Egyptians the infallibility was a natural result of the popular belief in regard to the relation in which the sovereign stood to the gods. For, says Diodorus Siculus, speaking of Egypt, the king of Pharaoh was believed to be a partaker of the divine nature. The adoration claimed by Alexander the Great evidently came from this source. It was directly an imitation of the adoration paid to the Persian kings that he required such homage. From Xenophon we have evidence that this Persian custom came from Babylon. It was when Cyrus had entered Babylon that the Persians for the first time testified their homage to him by adoration. For before this, says Xenophon in his Syro-poet, none of the Persians had given adoration to Cyrus. Our kings and ambassadors required to kiss the Pope's slippers. This too is copied from the same pattern. For, says Professor Gaussen, quoting Strabo and Herodotus, the kings of Chaldea wore on their feet slippers, which the kings they conquered used to kiss. In kind is the Pope addressed by the title of Your Holiness, so also was the pagan pontiff of Rome. The title seems to have been common to all pontiffs. Sumachus, the last pagan representative of the Roman Emperor, as a sovereign pontiff, addressing one of his colleagues or fellow pontiffs on a step of promotion he was about to obtain, says, I hear that your holiness, Sanctitatem Tuam, is to be called out by the sacred letters. Our fame 
chair came from the very same quarter as the cross keys. The very same reason that led the Pope to assume the Chaldean keys naturally led him also to take possession of the vacant chair of the pagan Pontifex Maximus. As the Pontifex, by virtue of his office, had been the hierophant or interpreter of the mysteries, his chair of office was as well entitled to be called Peter's chair, as the pagan keys to be called the keys of Peter, and so it was called accordingly. The real pedigree of the far-famed chair of Peter will appear from the following fact. The Romans had, says Boer, as they thought till the year 1662 AD, a pregnant proof not only of Peter's erecting that chair, but of his sitting in it himself. For till that year, the very chair on which they believed or would make others believe he had sat was shown and exposed to public adoration on the 18th of January, the festival of the said chair. But while it was cleaning, in order to set it up in some conspicuous place of the Vatican, the twelve labors of Hercules unluckily appeared on it. So we can just pause it there. You can see that Alexander Hislop is going to just really dismantle all the pagan artifices of ancient Babylonian mystery priestcraft that really exists within the Roman Catholic system there. And for many long centuries, they used lots of different kinds of superstition and mythology to build up the supposed power and prestige and supposed honors that were afforded to the Bishop of, of Rome, who was really becoming the, the pretended Bishop of Christianity, while in, in an exoteric sense, inwardly, uh, in, in, the, in the gnosis and the secret knowledge, he was really the hierophant or the Pontifex Maximus, the ruler of the Babylonian mystery mystery religion. As we carefully were able to calculate and plot the course of it through history, it moved from, from Babylon to Pergamos, and then from Pergamos in 133 BC, it passed to Rome through Attalus III, where it was picked up by Julius Caesar. And that's really where we're at here. We're at the point where Julius Caesar recognized the power of this particular title, I think there were other titles, there were other high priests of other religious systems there in Rome, but he understood the power of this particular Babylonian cult and how ancient it was and how important it was that it was bequeathed to the Roman state. And this was at a time when the Roman Senate as a republic, as a legislative body, still ruled the empire. And then after Julius Caesar, his dictatorship and his um, rise to become imperator and really the dictator and the sole monarchical ruler over all of Rome, was subsequently he took that power as the absolute dictator of Rome and the emperor and was stabbed to death and killed in the Senate chamber, whereupon Augustus Caesar took over and became the you know the, the Caesar, the emperor after him. And so this power this that was taken and usurped by Julius Caesar from the Roman Republic as far as the power to be an absolute dictator and to be an absolute ruler over the Senate and over all the people was something that passed down the line and continued in an unbroken line of succession. That's what we're talking about. Really bringing to light the power of the occult throne, the esoteric mystery nature of the occult system that's really empowering the world today. And you have to understand, ultimately, the, the Vatican City was really built on the hill called Vaticanus. And on the hill called Vaticanus, and there in Rome, that was the place where the Temple of Janus stood. And Janus was the two-faced, the, the, the double-faced God who was looking to the past and to the future. And 
and you can see that kind of symbolism today in the occult symbolism when you have the the bird with the um, the phoenix with the two heads. It's looking to the right and looking to the left. And it's this sense of duality. It's the sense of having two different, an exoteric and an esoteric uh, complexity. So that for the people who are the on the outside of the system, they look and see what they want to see. And they look and see icons of Jesus Christ, or they see statues that they believe is Mary, or they participate in, in rites and rituals and, and certain equinoxes and solst- winter solstice and other, other aspects of pagan, mithraic, occult rituals that they believe somehow because of these lies of the Vatican, they believe that they're somehow versions of Christianity. So while people are partaking in the actual rites and the actual liturgy and the actual ceremonies of the pagan mystery religion of Babylon, they think that they're practicing Christianity, but it's really just a deception. So um, in um, in the esoteric level, they know that they're carrying on these pagan Mithraic rites and the priestcraft are conducting rituals that are simultaneously Babylonian magic and being offered before the eyes of the parishioners as if it's proper Christian religion. It's unfortunate that we have to elucidate the facts of the matter, which are that that is a total deception and you're not actually practicing any kind of form of biblical Christianity or anything related to the actual reality of Jesus Christ, but you're really participating in the opposite of that. You're participating on a debased and a perverse system of idolatry that the God of the Bible has condemned. In order to further make this point, we have this fascinating discussion here, and it moves kind of fast by Chuck Missler. He's kind of an authority on the topic, as far as uh, historically speaking, on these matters. So let's listen to him break down this connection you know, that goes into the Dark Ages, the connection between the, the, the popes of old and the Caesars of Imperial Rome and the, the system of secret pagan ritualism and astrotheology, which is really just sun worship that really is in the background. So that's really what connects us from the Pope that you have in Rome today all the way down through through time to Theodosius and Constantine and back to Julius Caesar. And it's this constant theme of worshiping the Venus or worshiping the celestial bodies or the constellations of the stars, worshiping the sun and the moon. And it's this system of hidden pagan ritualism that masquerades as a pretended Christianity that's really the issue of concern here. And it's this carrying on with knowledge, the title of Pontifex Maximus, as if it's some kind of like biblical Christian priesthood that's connected to the apostles when it's nothing could be further from the truth. So let's listen to Chuck Missler here. What are these depths of Satan, first of all? Esoteric mysteries of the Babylonian cults, of course. In 378 AD, Demesis, the bishop of Rome, took the office of Pontifex Maximus. That was the high priest of the Babylonian religion. It previously had been the prerogative of the Caesars. But here he took it on, and that when the Christian church now had as his titular head, Pontifex Maximus, the very title from the Babylonian pagan paganism. But let's get into the papacy. This is the core issue here. Let's review this. And I want to apologize in advance for any of you who are from a Catholic background, because I'm, I'm pretty confident we're going to talk about some history that you may not be aware of. And I'll give you bibliographical references at the end where you can verify this. I do encourage you not to believe a word I say, but to do your own homework. But let's take a look. You will not understand the history of Europe unless you understand the tensions 
between the Vatican and the various kings of Europe as the Vatican aspired to temporal authority more than religious authority. The word Pope, of course, simply means Papa or Father. It initially applied to all Western bishops, by the way. About 500 AD, it began to be restricted to the Bishop of Rome. For 500 years, the bishops of Rome were not popes, by the way. What about Peter? They have a, Roman Catholics promote a tradition that Peter was the first pope. It's fiction. There's no historical basis for this. There's no evidence that Peter was ever a bishop of Rome. In fact, he himself seems to have a foreboding over his successors. In 1 Peter 5, 3, he says, neither as being lords over the God's heritage, but being examples to the flock, is his emphasis. Just the opposite, if you will. And by the way, there are people that argue that word Babylon in his second letter it shows up there as a code name for Rome. That's not true. Babylon was a major Jewish center. In fact, that's where the Babylonian Talmud was compiled. That's all another myth that we'll talk about later in the study, later in the study of Revelation. In the fourth century, there were five major primary centers, Rome, Constantinople, Antioch, Jerusalem, Alexandria. They each had the bishop in that area was called a patriarch. All five were originally equal. In 395 AD, when the empire divides, Antioch, Jerusalem, and Alexandria acknowledge the leadership of Constantinople. Not Rome, Constantinople. That's one reason Constantine moved it. But that started a struggle between Rome, pagan Rome, if you will, and Constantinople. And that struggle goes on for quite a while. And uh, the bishop of Rome and his lust for worldly power claimed universal jurisdiction over the church. And just, he just asserted it. Unfortunately, that was all. It was his, under his watch. The empire divided into two separate empires, east and west. The Roman Empire itself split into two arms, two legs, if you will. The east, of course, was beset with all kinds of uh, theori- uh, theological controversies. The west was under increasingly weak emperors, and it was breaking up before the barbarians. They would fall apart by 476 A.D. The eastern leg outlasted the western leg by a thousand years. But these jawbone attempts, these attempts for the Bishop of Rome to somehow declare that he's in charge of all of them, uh, was attempts that continued until Leo I. We want to get to Leo I here. Uh, the, uh, in 445, he obtained from the emperor uh, the, the, the imperial recognition for his claim as primate of all bishops. In 452, he did a... Understand the barbarians... Rome was falling apart. The barbarians were at the gates. And uh, Attila the Hun, he, he, he persuaded Attila the Hun to spare the city of Rome. Pretty cool. I mean, he, he pulled that off. Uh, in 455, two years later, uh, Gennesaric, the Vandal, uh, he did the same thing. He talked him into having mercy on the city. These jawbone attempts, these, these, these di- di- diplomatic moves really earned Leo I as, as reputation. He had it made. So he declared himself lord over the whole church. He advocated exclusive universal papacy, just following along here, the, the same claims that predecessors had, but in his case, he sort of earned some respect here. And he proclaimed that resistance to his authority was a sure path to hell. These are the kinds of assertions that are starting. They also advocated the death penalty for heresy. So this is starting. This is, these guys are starting to get pretty tough. But we have the fall of Rome. And uh, Simplicius was the Roman pope when the Western Empire came to an end. That's roughly 476 A.D. And uh, now there was no civil authority. All the fragmented kingdoms of the barbarians gave all kinds of opportunities to do deals among the. Uh, and the pope became one of the more commanding figures in the West, not because of his political authority, just as, as a center of influence. 
Gregory the First is regarded by many scholars as the first pope. Others would say Leo was. There's debates in, in that in various ways. But, but Gregory the First was quite a guy. If um, there, if there had been more popes like him, I think the world would have a whole different estimate of the papacy. He labored unceasingly over the purification of the church. He deposed neglectful or unworthy bishops. He opposed the sale of offices. That's called simony. Um, but let's get to a guy by the name of Charlemagne. Zacharias was instrumental in making Pepin the king of the Franks. The Franks was the Germanic people that occupied uh, western Germany and northern France. And uh, so uh, this pope was instrumental in letting Pepin become the king of the Franks. A uh, succeeding pope requested Pepin to lead his army to Italy to conquer the Lombards, which had pillaged Israel, and he did, and he succeeded. And he gave the center core of Italy to the pope. That became the beginning of the uh, the uh, papal states, if you will. And that continued, by the way, all the way till 1870, when uh, Italy regained uh, those lands back, all except the Vatican City itself. So they had that for 1,100 years, thanks to, to uh, um, Pepin. Now, the... the, the uh, Pepin has a son by the name of Charlemagne who becomes a major player. And he, was, he turns out to be one of the greatest rulers of all time. That's why we're getting into this a little bit here. But he was uh, he reigned 46 years through many wars and incredible conquests. And his realm included Germany, France, Switzerland, Austria, Hungary, Belgium, and parts of Spain and Italy. So that was the so-called Holy Roman Empire, if you will. And he helped the Pope, and the Pope helped him. They had a real duet going here. And uh, he was one of the greatest influences to bring the papacy to a position of royal power, uh, following the, the traditions. I might mention he's the grandson. Charlemagne was the grandson of Charles Martel, who stopped the Moors in 732. That was a big thing in European history. And Charles Martel, the, the, the Moors were the, the, were taken over Europe. And uh, at Tours, France, he, he stopped. So Charlemagne is his grandson. So he comes from a very distinguished background. And we get to the Treaty of Verdun. After Charlemagne dies, of course, the Treaty of Verdun divided his empire into what later became the foundation of Germany, France, and Italy. That's where it really came out of the Treaty of Verdun. But this is where a ceaseless struggle starts between the popes and the, primarily the German and French kings. And uh, the so-called Holy Roman Empire lasted a thousand years until Napoleon brought it to an end in 1806. It's interesting how the Holy Roman Empire, which was neither holy nor Roman, but that's the label, um, uh, it's sort of the echo of ambition subsequent. Hitler's Third Reich was the third regime. You had the original Roman Empire, the Holy Roman Empire. It was the Third Reich. That was the idea. And uh, uh, so on. And what we're seeing in Europe uh, is heading in a similar direction. Well, we have a strange thing occur. Um, Nicholas I, by the way, is the first pope to wear a crown. And uh, it was about this time, 857, that a book surfaces called the Isidorian Decretals. And it purported to be letters and decrees of bishops and councils of the second and third centuries. And the whole idea was to, to exalt the power of the Pope, stamping the papacy with the authority of antiquity, and antedating the Pope's temporal power by five centuries. They were very, very important, except after a couple of centuries, they were proven to be forgeries, most colossal forgeries in history. Deliberate forgeries. forgeries. See, until, 1860, until 1869, all these ecumenical councils were held under the auspices of Constantinople. They were in Greek, not Latin. We tend to forget that. But that was really where the, the real issues were joined. And Nicholas I undertook to interfere in the affairs of the Eastern Church. 
He excommunicated the patriarch of Constantinople, who in turn excommunicated them, so they, they treated excommunication those. Um, and uh, the claims of the Roman Church became increasingly unbearable, so the East finally it separates itself. This is called the Great Cleavage, where the where the Eastern Orthodox separates from the Roman Catholics, if you will. They really, that's where they really split. The Eastern Orthodox um, uh, has many traditions that are similar, but many that are very distinctly different than the Roman Catholics. They don't have celibate priests and so forth. Um, and, of course, the breach became, becomes wider through the centuries. And uh, the uh, brutal treatment of Constantinople by the armies of the Pope Innocent II during the Crusades uh, deepens the whole uh, division between the two. So there's a huge tension between them. Well, from 904 to 963 is known in history, strangely enough, as the rule of the harlots. And uh, it turns out that uh, uh, under Sergius III in 904, there's a gal by the name of Mar Marzoia, Marozia, excuse me, and uh, her mother Theodoria and her sisters, they filled the papal uh, chair with paramours and bastard sons and turned the papal den into a den of robbers. And this is why they called this era, called the rule of the, the, the harlots. Um, Sergius uh, I gets replaced by John X. He was brought from Ravenna to Rome by, uh, and made pope by Theodora for her more convenient gratification. He was uh, smothered to death by Marozia, who then in succession raised a papacy, uh, Leo VI, Stephen VII, and John IX, uh, 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 who was her own, her own illegitimate son. That conversation by Chuck Missler really goes on for quite some time, and he really breaks down a, a history and almost goes through every single pope in that discussion. But he really, in the very beginning, ties it back to the mystery schools, the mystery traditions and esoteric secret knowledge that the, the Gnosticism that was coming out of the ancient world was really being filtered into the, 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 the Roman system of paganism, which ultimately was shaping the Roman bishopric. And ultimately, the, the papacy itself was designed to reflect the hierophant or the the Pontifex Maximus, the high priest, the priest king of Babylon. And that was the, the power of the initiation and the shape that that, that uh, institution took, which was to rise from just being a pastor to a man who was a land holding a sovereign king and was really the king over all other kings. So it was, a, it was a will to power. It was a will of ambition to rise and to take control of the world and try to delude and deceive the world into receiving the fraudulent authority. Really what the Vatican represents, and that's really what the papacy represents, is a system of fraudulent authority. Of course, it would tell you that if you don't accept their authority that you're a heretic and you should be burned at the stake or you should be excommunicated or killed or punished in some kind of way, that if you don't accept the, the authority of the Pope, that you'll go to hell. Of course, there's no tradition for this unless you're coming from the Babylonian mystery cults, then that, that kind of thinking makes sense. The idea of, of, of Hades and the idea of, of um, a priest king who can send your soul to hell and who is the, the bridge between heaven and earth, who is the man, the God-man who, who is responsible for communicating the divine uh, intentions or who's the one who's the high priest over the entire cult. Well, all these ideas are something that we get from Babylon and from Egypt. Like, you'd imagine a pharaoh who was really a divine, who, was, who received 
worship and he was considered to be a divinity, just like Julius Caesar took on the title of Pontifex Maximus and impressed upon others that he was really the offspring of divinity. He was the offspring of, of Venus and other deities. It's really this process of setting up a universal religion in Rome. It was the pantheon of all the gods. So the process of conquering different parts of the world, different cultures, different nations, different languages and peoples throughout the world would be conquered and assimilated into the Roman Empire. And just like the Medo-Persians under Cyrus Long go, they wouldn't tear down or destroy their 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 worship or their system of ritual or the system of religious ceremony, but they would actually inculcate it into the Roman pantheon, build it in with all the other temples, and they would actually allow people who were conquered by Rome to continue to worship their religious system, to worship their gods as they saw fit, as long as they did it within the universal pantheon of Roman religion. And once you um, were conquered and your people were made part of Rome and you accepted that authority, then your religious icons could be put into the pantheon. You could set up a temple there and you could worship um, any god that you chose to as long as you did it underneath the Roman rule or the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. And so we're really just following this tangent of this system of occult mysticism as it moves down through time. And we're tracing it all the way back to Babylon, where the Medo-Persian Empire under Cyrus comes in and destroys Babylon and ultimately pushes the cult of Babylon, the Pontifex Maximus, the, the high priest of the Babylonian system, is ultimately going to set up shop in Pergamum or Pergamos, depending on you know which which uh, translation you, you're using. It's the positioning of this college, this unique system of religious worship that's being positioned there in Pergamum that ultimately lasts for many centuries. And ultimately, Attalus III, the last priest king of this Babylonian cult, would bequeath, like we, we said before, bequeathed his titles and all of his lands and his possessions and his royal authority to Rome in 133 BC. And there it kind of sat quietly, un, un, not being recognized by anyone until Julius Caesar would come along and he would take on this this title of high priest of the Babylonian cult at the Pontifex Maximus and he would when he takes on that title, he would have to accept the role that he is becoming the, the God-man. He's becoming the high priest, the priest king over all the Babylonian cults. And um, that might not have meant a lot to the people in Rome, but to the adherents of the mystery religion around the world, they recognized that this particular individual was now the ultimate divinity and that he would have to accept himself as a god. And so we're really getting into that discussion here. We have something we can say further on that. We have um, Jorg, York, who is going to be reading out of Rulers of Evil, which is a very fascinating book by Tupper Saucy. So let's just take a little listen here. According to Scottish theologian Alexander Hislop, Caesar consented to deification in order to inherit the huge kingdom of Pergamum. Consisting of most of Asia Minor, present-day Turkey, Pergamum was bequeathed to the Roman people in 133 BC by its king, Attalus III. But there was a catch. The people of Rome had to regard their leader as God. The Pergaminian kings had begun ruling as gods when the title of Pontifex Maximus fled the fall of Babylon in 539 BC. 
In that eventful year, Persian invaders assassinated the Babylonian king Belshazzar. Just moments prior, Belshazzar had seen his assassination prophesied by the famous handwriting on the wall. Quote, Mene Mene Tekel Ufarsin stands for the number is numbered, as we can read in Daniel chapter 5. Ruling as God by divine appointment, Belshazzar had profaned the sacred vessels of the Israelite temple. This was the unpardonable sin of blasphemy, for which God sent the Persians to destroy him. Now Belshazzar's priests were evidently spared. Rather than submit to the Persian conquerors, they furtively gathered together all their portable treasures, entitlements, codes, inscriptions, astrology, sacred formula and insignia, and fled with them northwesterly to Pergamon. Since the rulers of Pergamon were already practicing Babylonian religion, they were honored to receive the fugitive Babylonian college and their great endowment. The new residence of Pontifex Maximus became a showplace for despotism. The neighboring Greeks reflected its sudden transformation with the mist of Midas, the king whose touch turned everything to gold. Babylonian rule graced Pergamum with the world's greatest medical complex, the Asclepian, dedicated to the god of pharmacological healing, Asclepius. Pergamum became the most important humanist learning center, its library housing more than 200,000 scrolls. Mark Anthony would later move these assets to Alexandria as a gift to Cleopatra. Many of them eventually found their way from Alexandria to the Medici Library in Florence, where we have Medici learning from, learning against learning, and the Medici are also an old papal bloodline, so there are probably a lot of all these scrolls in the Vatican. Attalus III died in 133 BC, he bequeathed all his kingdoms, Babylonian grandeur, to the Romans. But no Roman emperor was deemed fit to receive it because the Roman constitution had never suffered a man to be deified. The bequest lay unclaimed until 48 BC when Caius Mariah Caesar was declared God Almighty in the Serapion. Alexandria's temple of Jupiter. Deification entitled Caesar now to assume the title Pontifex Maximus. To indicate his infinitely holier status, he took the name Julius. The name was a claim of decent from Julius Escanius, the legendary son of legendary Aenas, Virgil's maritime hero who sailed westward with a band of his Trojan fellow countrymen fleeing the sack of Troy by Greek marauders. Assisted by the whole heavenly network of mythic deities, Aenas led his followers to sacrifice their individuality for a glorious collective existence that would one day be called Rome. This is a so very interesting sentence. I cannot go over it without commenting. Aenas led
led his followers to sacrifice their individuality for a glorious collective existence that would one day be called Rome. Aenas was considered the offspring of a union between a human being, Anchises, and Jupiter's wife, Venus. When Anchises boasted of his intercourse with the goddess, Jupiter struck him blind with thunderbolt. The Aenid, and I told you, remember, um, that I mentioned before that there is a book read out on YouTube of that historic work. If you want to read more about this fable of the Aenid, then you can go to YouTube and listen to that audiobook. But you gotta be very patient. <laughs> I tell you, it's a long one and it's not easy to understand. But the Aenid opens with Aenas carrying blind old Anchises out of Troy on his shoulders. By taking the name of Aenas' son Julius and claiming descent from him as well, Caesar was able to trace his lineage back to the Queen of Heaven. The divine lineage supposedly flowed through his mother, Maria, Amaria, who was purported to have conceived him without losing her virginity. Maria also claimed to have remained a virgin even in childbirth by having her son delivered from the side in a surgical operation that still bears Caesar's name, still today. Did you understand that Caesar was able to track his lineage back to the Queen of Heaven, that he be of divine, in the, 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 of divine conception? Yeah? Isn't that what in the Bible is said about Jesus? Do you see how the devil counterfeits everything, everything that is written in the Bible with Caesar and making him Pontifex Maximus and telling the fable, I call it fable, all of this quote-unquote fable and endless genealogy, which Paul taught the church not to heed, is foundational to American secular government. For it is Julius Ascanius, grandson of Venus and claimed ancestor of the original Caesar, who inspired Anuit Coeptis, the upper motto on the flip side of the Great Seal of the United States. The phrase which the U.S. Department of State interprets to mean, quote, God hath favored this undertaking, unquote, was spoken by young Julius Ascanius in the ninth book of Virgil's Aeneid. And that was spoken by young Julius Ascanius in the ninth book of Virgil's Aeneid. What does Virgil's Aeneid, I ask you, have to do with anything with the God of the Bible, with the creator of the world? The scene is a battleground. The Trojans are outnumbered and fearful. Young Julius Ascanius takes a position in front of his shrinking countrymen. He looks up at an evil giant named Remulus, king of the Rutulus. Remulus mocks the Trojans for sending a boy to fight him. While the giant quakes with derisive slaughter, Julius slips an arrow onto his bowstring and cries toward the heavens, quote, Almighty Jupiter, favor this rebellious undertaking. Audacibus ad nue queptis. 
Each year I shall bring to thy temple gifts in my own hands and place a white bullock at thy altar. Unquote. Twelve years after the publication of the fourth eclogue, Octavian entered Rome triumphantly as the Prince of Peace. Like Julius had done, the new Pontifex Maximus received a new and holier name, Caesar Augustus. Quote, Since sanctuaries and all places consecrated by the ogres are known as August, according to Suetonius, unquote. A little mentioning in the brackets here from the author. And like Julius, he was hailed as, quote-unquote, son of God. Historian Alexander Del Mar describes the universal acceptance of the divine Octavian in these excerpts from his landmark expose, uh, exposition of Roman political deification, the worship of Augustus Caesar in 1899. Quote, in the firm establishment of the messianic religion and ritual, Augustus ascended the sacred throne of his martyred sire and was in turn addressed as the son of God, Divi Filius, whilst Julius was worshipped as the father. This claim and assumption appears in the literature of his age, was engraved upon his monuments and stamped upon his coins. It was universally admitted and accepted throughout the Roman Empire as valid and legitimate according to chronology, astrology, prophecy and tradition. His actual worship as the Son of God was enjoined and enforced by the laws of the Empire, accepted by the priesthood and practiced by the people. Both de jure and de facto, it constituted the fundamental article of the Roman imperial and ecclesiastical constitution. As supreme pontiff of the Roman Empire, Augustus lawfully acquired and exercised authority over all cardinals, priests, curates, monks, nuns, flemens, augurs, vestal virgins, temples, altars, shrines, sanctuaries and monasteries, and over all religious rites, ceremonies, festivals, holidays, dedications, canonizations, marriages, divorces, adoptions, benefices, wills, burying grounds, fairs, and other ecclesiastical subjects and matters. The common people wore little images of Augustus suspended from their necks. Great images and shrines of the same god were erected in the highways and resorted to for century. There were a thousand such shrines in Rome alone. Augustus wore on his head a pontifical mitre surmounted by a Latin cross, an engraving of which, taken from a coin of the Colonia Giulia Gemella, appears in Harduini, the Denumis Antiquis, from 1689, Plate I. The images of Augustus upon the coins of his own mintage, or that of his vessels, are surrounded with the halo of light, which indicates divinity, and, I have to add, sun worship, of course. And on the reverse, sun worship, as you know, <laughs> and on the reverse of the coins are displayed the various emblems of religion, such as the mitre, cross, crook, fishes, labyrinth, and the Buddhic or Bacchic or Dionysian monogram of PX, the Greek chiro, coming from Cairo, site of the Great Pyramid. 
So we're proceeding apace here with these different excerpts and these different intersections. And you can see that as we compile this information and start to lay it out, what we're really getting at and what we're really starting to paint the picture and tell the tale of how a, a, a system of pagan mythology and ancient mysticism could become a system of syncretism, a system of secret initiation, puts forward a false front to the world and keeps a secret inner doctrine that's only known to the to those who are initiated into such a, a system of Gnosticism has been around for quite a long time and it's learned to be a chameleon and to change its shape and to amalgamate its different doctrines and its different tenets with those that are most useful in other geocultic systems and allows them to unify. And this is what we were looking at here in this program of Babylonian mysticism, the, the mystery schools, the mystery Babylon, if you will. The, the cult system has moved continuously through history and has not, and has remained virtually unchanged. It has not disappeared over time or weakened, but actually gained in strength and power and absorbed all the existing systems of authority and government and power. And that's how you see the, the rise of the papacy over time to become such a ubiquitous authoritarian religious dictatorship, a system of absolute power. It is designed to mimic the ideals and the virtues of Christianity, although that's why uh in the Gospels, you'll see that Christ referenced to wolves in sheep's clothing, and that's what you're dealing with. So in order to make the point and to really complete the whole thought, we have Walter Veith here. This is the episode of his teaching that's called The Wine of Babylon, number 219, and you can look it up, and we'll try to add it in on this podcast too. So let's listen to Walter Veith. Kings of the earth, that's the political systems of the world, of how much of the world? the whole world to gather them to the battle of the great day of God Almighty. So the conflict is going to be between this false trinity and the people of God, those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. So Mystic Babylon consists of the dragon component, the dragon, Satan, working directly with man, that would be spiritism, strange occurrences, appearances, uh, all of those spiritualistic activities. The beast, organized religion culminating in the papacy, and the false prophet, those who once knew but are returning to false prophecies. We are told by Eusebius that Constantine, in order to recommend the new religion to the heathen, transferred into it the outward ornaments to which they had been accustomed in their own development of Christian doctrine. And the evidence points out the fact that Christianity early on was paganized and just took on the garb of Christianity. And this is derived according to the writings of the secret societies, it can be traced all the way back to Simon Magus. Simon Magus followed Peter and Paul to Rome, and he was a magician. He was a pagan priest who put on a cloak of Christianity because he wanted to have that power, and Peter rebuked him. And this Simon Magus, by the way, the name Simon also means Peter, he followed them to Rome. And this
this occult mixture between paganism and Christianity finds its seat in him. He was the Petra, P-T-R. And the Petra, Peters, have nothing to do with Simon Peter, the apostle, but have to do with Simon Magus. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in amongst you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. The teachings of Magus, of Simon Magus, having come from Sumeria, were Kabbalistic in nature. And out of Kabbalism comes Gnosticism. And Gnosticism is the teaching that the Messiah is the Osiris of old. So the ancient Egyptian mythologies, which come from the Book of the Dead, which come from Tutmosis III, who was the very pharaoh who clashed with Moses, who was the high priest of occultism and paganism. This religion of Osiris and Isis, the goddess, this, how shall we say this, anthropomorphic human input, into this religion and androgenic worship because the deities were both male and female and they were interchangeable. This religion is what was brought into Christianity. Now the ancient gods, if we want to find the thread into modern Babylon, we'll have to look at ancient Babylon. The Chaldeans worshipped Bel or Merodach, and then there was Ninus the sun. And the sun was also worshipped as Tammuz. And the women of Israel were very apt to weep for Tammuz because he was an artificial, a counterfeit Messiah. The devil had the Messiah prepared before the real one so that people would not accept the real one. How do we know Jesus is the real one? Do you remember the prophecy we dealt with? Do you remember the prophecy on the Messiah? the 70-week prophecy, where the rabbinic curse says that you are cursed, your hand, your, your finger, your wrist, your arm, that you are cursed if you should number the 70 weeks because it identifies the real Messiah spot on. So the counterfeit Messiah was already there, and he was Tammuz. Then there was the goddess, Rhea. She was also worshipped as Ishtar, from which we have the word Easter today, Astarte, Beltus, and she was the queen of heaven. She was the queen of heaven. And she was known as the Wrath Subduer. Now, in Catholicism, we have exactly the same thing. It is stated nobody comes to the Father except through Jesus, but nobody comes to Jesus except through Mary. And Mary is the Mediatrix. She is the Wrath Subduer. So we have a similar system to what we had here in Babylonian times. Now, if you take these religions and you look at them on a worldwide basis, in Egypt, these deities were worshipped as Isis, the goddess, and her son Osiris. And Osiris was the one who died, became part of the sun, was resurrected, and came back to this earth as Horus. Horus, the divine child. And the Divine Mother, Isis, so you have mother and child worship. In India, they were worshipped as Isi and Iswara. It's the same religion. In fact, the Babylonian religion 
is today the universal religion of all the religious systems. China, it was Shing Mu and the mother and son. In Greece, Ceres and Irene and Plutus. In Rome, it was Fortuna and Jupiter Pure. This was the ancient system of worship. It's interesting that in the latest seminar taking place about Christianity in the world today, the so-called Jesus Seminar, where they are speaking about a new reformation. God forbid that we should call it a reformation. Where they talk about a reformation and want to put Jesus on a par with Osiris. I have a problem with that. Because the one is a counterfeit of the other. And the religious doctrines associated with the Book of the Dead, which concerns Osiris, is totally the opposite of what the Bible says. Well, Ezekiel 8.16 says that the door of the temple of the Lord between the porch and the altar were about five and twenty men with their backs towards the temple of the Lord and their faces towards the east and they worshipped the sun towards the east. So ancient Israel, although they knew God and knew the power of God, were already diverted towards this paganism. I'll tell you why. Because it's a very sophisticated religion. Don't underestimate paganism. We think these peoples were, were silly or stupid because they worship pagan gods. We're no less stupid. Did you know that? Most of my life I served pagan gods. Didn't even know it. Didn't even know it. But that's a fact. So they worship the sun because sun worship is a perfect counterfeit of messianic worship. So in other words, it's easy to substitute the one for the other, put him in the right garb, and apply the right liturgy, and you've got a religion. Now the religion comes from the legend of Nimrod and Semiramis. Nimrod was a warrior against the Lord, and he was the one who apostatized, and then he was put to death, and his widow, Semiramis, claimed that he had been resurrected or had take, been taken up to the sun and had been reborn through her. And as the fish swims in the waters of the Euphrates, so the fish symbol became the symbol of the God that protected Nimrod in this transition. And then she gave birth to the child, who was, of course, the birth, the rebirth, the resurrection, if you like, in a child of Osiris. In Scandinavia, they were worshipped as Frigga and Balder, Venus and Adonis in Rome, and Ashtoreth and Baal in Phoenicia. And the child became the sin bearer and became the savior. And this was his name. He was called Zoroaster. By the way, Zoroasterism is alive and well and living in the Middle East. It is the seed of the woman, Mitras, the savior. Mitraism is one of the most sophisticated forms of sun worship. And we will be dealing with Mitraism because it is astounding who Mitra was and what Mitraism is today.
Even here in the United States, you'll be surprised how much Mithraism there is. Dionysius is the sin bearer, Bacchus the branch, Vishnu the victim man, Osiris king and kings. Do you recognize those titles? Those are all titles that belong to Jesus Christ. And they have been captured by these pagan deities. Now, if you were a priest of the pagan deities, then you worship this deity in many, many forms. One of the most prominent forms was in the form of the god Dagon, and the priests to Dagon, Dag, On, On is the Egyptian for God, Dag is fish, so it's the fish form of this god. The priests wore the fish mitre on the head, and uh, they had a complete fish cloak. And the fish in ancient Egypt and in pagan religions becomes the symbol of Dagon. In this particular Egyptian one, you have the horns of the bull. The bull, the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet was the symbol of the bull. In the, in the east, it was the alpha, the eleph, the elephant, the elephant becomes the bull of the east. And these creatures become symbols of the sun god. Therefore, you have bull worship. And you have elephant worship, and the horns that were between the eyes of the bull also are a symbol of the half moon, the sickle moon, which becomes a symbol of the womb of the woman which receives the rebirth of the sun god. So later on, they became a little bit more sophisticated, and the priests of Dagon wore the fish mitre and the cloak, and then later on, they substituted the fish cloak for colorful robes, normally in the colors crimson, which is the color of sacrifice, purple, which is the color of royalty. Now, do you recognize that sort of mitre on the top there? Do people wear it today in another form? Yes, they do. Well, let's go and see if we can find it really in the ancient Babylonian um, Finds. Yes, we can. This one here comes from the Pergamon Museum. I took this one myself. There you have the symbol of the sun and the wavy lines, by the way, wavy lines emanating from the sun are the sign of the female symbol. Straight lines are the sign of the male symbol. Through the union of the male and female deity, you had the birth of the Savior. And uh, here you have priests of Dagon, walking around with pails over there containing holy water. And they would have little brushes which were made from hyssop. And then they would sprinkle the people to wash them. Is that a ritual that is practiced today? Yes, very much so. Here you have a priest, a high priest of Dagon. There you had the symbol in the sky of the god Shamash who is the symbol of the deity. He has the wings, normally the wings of an eagle. And then you have the solar symbol in the middle. There's another solar symbol, which is two stars superimposed over each other, making eight spokes. So you make a solar wheel of eight spokes. And if you were the high priest, then you had to bow down to the high priest, or if you were the representative or the god himself, and you had to often kiss the ring and kiss the slipper. Now, if we go to Rome, 
This is the Pantheon outside Rome, and this is the place where all the deities of ancient times were worshipped. And outside, you have this little statue over here, where you have a cuboid down there, which is also a symbol of paganism, by the way. Then you have the Elef standing at the bottom, symbol of the sun god. Then you have the Stella, which is the symbol of the phallic symbol of Osiris, because when Isis put him back together again, this is one of the parts she had to reconstruct. And on top of that, you have the symbol of the cross. And we'll deal with that a little bit later. If you go into the Pantheon, you have interesting little things on the floor. You have squares. The pagan deities were either in a square or they were represented in a circle. So you have circles and you have squares. And because they were both good and evil, representing both shades, therefore you had black and white squares. Now if we go to Roman Catholic churches, you will find the cathedrals, you'll find the fish over there. This is the, the ancient goddess, Astarte. There's the fish mitre with the symbol of the star or the sun and the half moon over there. And then you have a whole plethora of pagan symbols in the hand, many of which are used today. This one is used by the medical world. That one up there is very interesting. Here's a fish, for example. This comes out of Hinduism as a symbol of the pagan deity. There was the god Osiris. And here you have some interesting symbols on the mitre of the Pope. There you have the symbol of the sun god. That's the, one of the main symbols of the sun deity with the four and the four spokes within a circle. And that over there is a cross, which is known as the Maltese cross. And the Knights of Malta wear that particular cross. And we will see that that particular cross, look at it carefully, is a direct symbol of the sun deity. It's got nothing to do with Christianity. Well, let's go there. Here is one of the kings of uh, ancient times. And this is a, an Assyrian king, Sargon. What has he got around his neck? Can you see it? This is in the British Museum. There you have the Maltese cross, which is the same cross that the Pope has on his side. And he's pointing here with his finger like this, which is also a symbol of the one, meaning the one deity, the number one, the one stands for the sun god. There you have the symbol which we just saw on the mitre of the Pope, symbol of the sun god. There's another symbol. You have the compass, the set square and the compass, which you find in Freemasonry. Over there you have the half moon with the sickle in it, which you find in many religions. There you have the multi-layered one, as you find in the Aztec religions of sun worship. And there you have the triple mitre, the three aspects of the sun god. Those are the, some of the main symbols of sun worship, as you find them in ancient times. Where do you think we'll find them most prominently today? Probably in the papacy. Well, all of these are wearing fish mitres. Those are mitres of Dagon. Let's go to Basilica San Clement, one of the churches in Rome. Let's go down to the bottom. You will find that they used an altar which on the one side was inscribed with Christianized symbols and on the other had petroglyphs 
of pagan sun worship. So both religions worshipped in the same capacity, used the same venues, switched the altars, and eventually they fused into one. Church history tells us Christianity became the established religion of the Roman Empire and took the place of paganism. Christianity, as it existed in the Dark Ages, might be termed baptized paganism. It's very interesting. Let's see what, a, what the Roman Catholic Church has to say about this. The story of American Catholicism, page 37. It has often been charged that Catholicism is overlaid with many pagan incrustations. Catholicism is ready to accept that accusation and even to make it her boast. The great god Pan is not really dead. He's baptized. Aha! So paganism is within the church and the real deity behind the scenes that is worshipped is not Jesus Christ, but is Osiris in whatever form he is. In the form of Pan, you would find him in the groves. He was the god of the groves. He was the god of fear. That's where the word panic comes from. And this god Pan is the one that is worshipped either as a beautiful young man who wears and carries the sheep as the shepherd, or he is worshipped as the one with the goat's feet, depending which aspect you are looking at. Because whether you worship him in his positive sense, or whether you worship him in his negative sense, it's the same deity. It's the same whether you worship Lucifer, or whether you worship the good side. The dark and the light are one and the same deity. Well, let me take you to this very prominent Roman Catholic cathedral. And uh, I was looking for these symbols in this Roman Catholic cathedral in the south of Germany. And here I found what they call the Statue of David. You see it over there with the sheep, carrying the sheep around his neck. And I was wondering whether that was a representation of David or whether it was a representation of the other one. But it's not too difficult to tell because what has he got in his hand? He's carrying the pan flute. Now, did David ever play the pan flute? Yes or no? No. David didn't carry the pan flute. He had the harp, the hand harp. So this instrument tells me that this is pan and not the other one. Then I was interested, having seen pan over here, whether I would find pan in his negative form in the same construction, in the same building. And sure enough, there he is. There's Pan with the goat's feet. And all the other symbols of paganism, including Janus, the two-headed one. So this is paganism in its highest form. If we go to St. John's Lateran, which is the church where the papacy speaks ex cathedra, or if you go to St. Peter's, the whole system over here, the whole construction is a system of pagan sun worship. The site is the ancient site. By the way, most of the cathedrals in the world are built on the very ancient pagan sites where the ancient deities were worshipped. The construction of these buildings are also in, in accordance with the ancient pagan rites. So here you have the triangle, for example. You have the famous sun dome, and you have this pillared structure, which is normally known as the seat of the goddess. And if you enter into this place on the floor, 
you will find the official title of the papacy, which is Pontifex Maximus. Now, this title comes all the way from Babylon. It has been changed through time. When Medo-Persia took over, the Medo-Persians took over the religion, the same religious system. The priests of Babylon revolted at some stage, were driven out, and fled to Pergamos. And there, the Pontic king, Pontifex Maximus, resided until Roman times, when he gave his title, his vestments, and all the powers of being a deity as well as a high priest to the emperor. And that's why Roman emperors got the title Pontifex Maximus. And when Rome declined and the seat of the Caesar was empty, the Bishop of Rome claimed the title Pontifex Maximus, which means the bridge builder. He's the bridge between heaven and earth. So he takes the place of Jesus Christ, who is the bridge between heaven and earth. And if we want to see whether we find any of the interesting symbols, this is on the floor of the Vatican. What do we have over there? There we have the triple crown. Where we see that? It's a symbol of the ancient religion that we saw there associated with the Babylonian system and the Assyrian kings. So we have brought to bear in this episode a really interesting and diverse perspective here to really kind of hone in on what we're really trying to expose as the anti-Christian nature of the Roman papacy. And it's a difficult subject matter. It's it's really replete with a lot of kind of sensitive areas. A lot of people who are religious, they will glom on to whatever their particular sacred tradition is, and they will be offended if anyone tries to show them their error or to correct them from a, a position that they're in that, that they need to view the the Vatican as not a friendly, helpful, godly ministry that's helping the people of the world to wash away their sins or to become better people. But ultimately what's happening is the Vatican is becoming a presumptuous megalomania and it seeks to rule over all the affairs of mankind. And there is no way to have any kind of freedom or liberty or liberation from the ubiquitous authority that the Vatican intends to wield and really the whole move towards globalism itself and the move towards the international global governance is evocative of the ambition of the Vatican itself. And it's really, you have to recognize that they're the ones who have the, the prerogative and also the financial backing to create this supranational global institution that this earth state that seems that seeks to ultimately control every single person and every single government and every single aspect of life on earth and to make decisions about what people are allowed to to know or what they're not allowed to know, what they're allowed to believe in, what's acceptable, controlling all political speech, all political thought. And really we're in an era of thought crimes where you can really I was reading this one podcast and people are apparently getting arrested for for memes now. So if you have a meme that's too mean and it's too too edgy and tells too much truth, then you could in some areas probably find yourself getting arrested. So it, it's an, an era of restriction 
on thought. And we're the type of people here in the United States who want the liberty of our conscience. We want the freedom of our conscience to do what we think is we believe is right and not be forced to be guided by other people's conscience. So I don't want the Pope over in Rome telling me what's right or wrong or these traditions are no longer acceptable or these traditions have to stand or these have to change. I don't need a dictator, a spiritual dictator to tell me how to conduct my relationships with the Lord or with, with my family or with anything. Like, can you imagine the this this guy running around carrying a golden stick talking about how he has somehow the power to withhold sin or to cast people into purgatory or to release people from purgatory or to say high requiem masses so that your your relatives who have died can be sprung from purgatory i mean these are all the, the catholic teachings and the basic Roman Catholic canon law that's been continuously uh, and unchangingly carried down through us through the centuries, and they're not going to change their perspective. I mean, these, these Jesuits who are now controlling the papacy, they may change some wording or, or pivot in front of the the media on some doctrines, um, changing so, you, know, you know, for a long time people who were homosexuals were burned at the stake, and there was something that was unacceptable. Now in this modern era if they think they can make some political hate out of it or they can they can make a few points they'll they'll shift and say hey listen these doctrines about people being sinners are are, are going to change and we'll rewrite them and, and of course the papacy and the curia and none of those men up there none of those perverse uh, men and these are men who don't have wives supposedly don't have children don't have families and they're going to tell us all how to conduct ourselves it's really bizarre and it's really profane and kind of insidious to think that these guys walking around with all these this golden uh gilded you know the, with the robes and the uh the purple and the scarlet to imagine that somehow they're going to um do uh deal with god for us they're going to manage the uh, the god affairs they're going to handle god they're going to message him and talk to him or do their incense or whatever they're going to do but they're somehow going to carry on the uh, our relationship with god for us and what we have to do is go whisper to the priests and tell them what our sins are and, and they'll they'll go they'll do some kind of vatican magic and they'll I'll square it with God for us. That's who we're to believe. So I have a couple more interesting things I want to add, but we really need to kind of get to the end of our episode here. But I want to add this interesting comments by Johnny Cerucci. He's on a podcast. He's doing a really fascinating interview. And he has some interesting things to say. So let's listen to Johnny Cerucci and get his take on it. Constantine may have melded some, some sun worship in with Christianity, or he may not have. Uh, One thing is for sure, Constantine immediately stopped some of the worst pagan practices. That is child abuse, child sexual abuse, and child sacrifice. Constantine would go on to take over pagan shrines and confiscate their wealth and, and apply it to the empire. Well, to me, I don't mind any of that. I don't mind any of that. And there are there are various sources that say certainly his mother, maybe even his father, were were converted Christians. That's not really where the big trouble starts, with the exception of Constantine getting getting in on Christian doctrine. That that was the beginning. Constantine feeling I'm I'm the emperor, I'm a Christian, I am going to arbitrate on doctrinal issues. Well, that sets the stage for a centralized authority. And that is the easiest way 
for not nice people to take an organization and steer it in the wrong direction. So I would say, if anything, Constantine's centralizing of authority in Rome was the beginning of bad. But it was Theodosius I that really caused trouble, making Christianity the state religion of the Roman Empire by empirical decree. That really started the trouble because Rome was very much a pagan empire with a lot of very bad pagan doctrines. And these pagan doctrines were not wiped out. They were melded in. And basically the pagan doctrines remained and wrapped up in Christian trappings. So now you have things like pilgrimages to sacred places. We have worship of the mother and child. We have worship of the dead. We have communication with the dead, prayers for the dead. We have the purchasing of spiritual favors, indulgences, um, which is, oh my goodness, it is known as um, Simonism. It, it, there's, a, there's a term related to Simon Magus as the first one to try and do that. The, the uh, Simonism? What is it? I think that uh, what you were saying about uh, Theodosius, uh, did you say the, the second, Theodosius the second, uh, was the one who made Christianity the state religion in Rome. I think that's important for people to remember because, you know, your average person would say that's Constantine. And I just think people should get that one bit of information correct because that is an important thing to remember. There's so many things that people don't know. Uh, about that time period or about history in general. And I, I always uh, hear people say it was Constantine that did that, but that is incorrect. Yeah, I'm, 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 that is an important agenda for me. And for that specific reason, he did not, he did not force this syncretistic melding of paganism with Christianity, which just makes it that much harder to understand who he was. They realize that these things that they're doing, the centralizing of authority, did he understand that he was creating a paradigm that would allow evil forces to come in and, and take over Christianity? Did, did he understand that? And if he did, would he have walked a different path? Who knows? Right. Yeah. So, yeah, it is important to keep that straight. And uh, very soon... It was, I guess, Justinian in, I want to say, 538 A.D. That is an important line of demarcation, recognizing the so-called Bishop of Rome as corrector of heretics and Bishop of Bishops. This continued to centralize authority. He had this intermingling of emperors also holding this authority becoming the great Pontifex Maximus, the, build, the, the builder of bridges. So you have the 
the split of the Orthodox Church, and then the destruction of Orthodoxy, Constantinople by the Ottoman Turks, uh, good grief, like a thousand years later. But for the, for the most part, the power and control and, and really a literal dark ages for a millennium, like 1,000 years from roughly 500 A.D. to 1500 A.D., Christianity is abused, is misdirected by this syncretistic pagan religion with Christian trappings now known as Catholicism. And it was in the 1500s we had the advent of an Augustinian monk named Martin Luther who had a heart for the people and knowledge of scripture because he could read Latin, which is which was common for the clergy. The Catholic Church had forbade the promulgation of the scriptures, and, and that should in and of itself tell you where the Vatican comes from on this issue. As feudalism was promoted and continues to be promoted to this day, how we have People magazine promoting the so-called royals is actually a Vatican agenda. Because if you accept the ridiculous feudalism of Britain, then you will also be warm towards the centralized authority of Rome. The same thing with Christ's Mass that has nothing to do with the winter equinox and solstice, December 25th, and everything to do with paganism that encourages you to lie to your children. Now, I don't want to make this a, a referendum on Christmas. It all starts with your mind and your heart. The biggest problem I have with Christ's Mass is I don't go to Mass, number one. And number two, you shouldn't be lying to your kids. No matter how fun and inoffensive it seems, it is insidious because it makes you accept not just a lie, but an entire reality paradigm that is false. You immerse your children into this ridiculous false reality of this supposed Saint Nicholas who has divine powers to see all and know all and deliver presence to all. Well, from there, lying to you about a host of other things is suddenly more acceptable. The power of the Vatican, it is mystery Babylon. At an unbelievable level of power and control, and yet you can't see it. That's what a mystery is. The confessional is one of the is, is the spinal cord of this machine, of this structure, of this system. And the more you look, these are are symptoms. Rome, the Vatican, is the root. And let's get back to 1500. 
and how Christians had been living for a millennia, a thousand years in darkness, unaware of, of what their own scriptures told them. And about this time, as the scriptures, not about this time, throughout this time, as the scriptures leaked out to rank and file Christians outside of the clergy, they would be brutally mistreated. It was back in the 1300s that a Catholic priest and monk named John Wycliffe copied the scriptures, had the scriptures copied by hand. This took years to accomplish. Gave them to his students who were misnamed and slandered as lollards because, oh, they didn't work for a living. All they did was evangelize. That's Catholic slander. To go about and evangelize across the British countryside. A, a true born-again evangelist. When Catholic authorities, authorities came upon any of the followers of Wycliffe sharing and handing out Bibles, they would tie the Bible around the evangelist's neck and burn them alive. And this is before the advent of the so-called Inquisition. No entity, no entity has slaughtered and tortured more believers in Jesus Christ than the city-state of Rome. Certainly military Rome, but absolutely religious Rome. With that, we're just going to wrap up this episode, and I think it's a fascinating look into some of the diverse information that's out there, some of the things that are hard to put together in this particular order that we laid this out, and we're pointing out here that what is a terrible and enormous ubiquitous universal deception that goes across the world that suggests that somehow the Vatican uh, church there, the center of the Roman Empire as it were, was somehow a religious church and it's really just a marvelous and horrific lie you need to be made aware of the fact that, that, that just like Johnny Sericho was talking about, the, the syncretism of ancient Egyptian magic and Babylonian cultism and the mystery religions have worked their way into the Greek culture and the Persian culture and ultimately the Roman culture and those Mithraic cult traditions and those secret profane initiation rites of black magic were instituted and inculcated and instilled and perfected within the, the Curia and within the Vatican system of religion there. It's a, it's a false Christian religion. It's really an occult pagan system of witchcraft that you're looking at there that really, that's really why they, they worship on their high Requiem Mass is there on December 25th, which is the winter solstice and the equinox of the of the winter there. So we will get back to you. We have much more to say on this. Thank you again 